You are listening to the Razor to Razor podcast presented by Race 92. Race 92 is a vintage-inspired racing apparel brand specializing in celebrating vintage race culture and adapting to motorsports today. Check out race92.com for all your racing merchandise needs. I'm your co-host, Darren Mack. To other co-hosts, you may have seen walking out of great clothes with a big old smile on his face. You've probably seen him in a dirt track. He is the one and only Scott Bowie. So this is the, um, for obviously no one knows this is listening or watching. This. this is like our fifth time doing this intro um, <laughs> because I just can't contain myself today. And we're just, I'm just laughing every time I try to do this. So we're finally able to do this, which is a good thing. <laughs> yes. No, it was funny though watching you crack up. So Aaron has been on special assignment this past week. <laughs> what Aaron, well, would you like to share where you've been? I wouldn't really say it was a special assignment because I was more there as a fan. But, um, yeah, I was at the 24 Hours of Daytona. So, <clears throat> really cool experience. Always like going there. Um, I will say I've been there, I don't even know how many times now, probably like five times. And this time was by far the worst weather that they've ever had with me being there. It was raining most of the day Thursday, a little bit Friday. Um, and then it was just cold yesterday on i mean it was cold on saturday just really cold and we got up early and it was like it was colder there than it is in in indiana so not good weather at all but still great any day that you can spend daytona international speedway definitely is a great day so no complaints there um i started taking photos as well and i showed you some of the photos that i took so that was that was pretty cool but yeah, it was, and they're good too. And, and um, I don't know if Aaron will end up showing any of those photos or not, but the photos they sent me were really good. They, um, I mean, for especially a novice and and somebody who's just learning, man, hats off to you. There's a couple that, man, I would definitely frame and put on a wall. So, yeah, and that so the one car um, is the Colton Herta Pato Award, Eric Lux, um, and. Uh, the oh Dave, I don't know how to say his name. Um, Del Delvin Dan Francisco. Devlin D. Francisco. Yeah, I think that's correct. Um, so that that was the team. They actually won their class LMP two, I believe. And um, yeah, that, so that so I took that that picture of that car and like it's just the colors is really popped with the Ferris yeah. wheel. So it was dark out. And I actually um, posted it on my personal Instagram and I tagged all the drivers and that Eric Lux, who's one of the drivers, actually. Um, reposted on a story so i thought that was pretty cool oh that's awesome i didn't even know that um, yeah. no it's a great photo man and, and uh it's man taking photos is tough that that's hard yeah. that's it took a, time that's a hard skill there i mean there's the truly great ones i mean they they're able to somehow or another tell a story with their photo which that takes a while to get to i'm sure but uh but your i mean your stuff looked good man yeah all of the um photos i took like on the first day none of them are really any good because it, it takes the least day to figure out how to do it um you think you got it but it's just getting the focus right and following with the car and taking pictures and getting the settings around the camera that's another big thing um but i think i think i'm in the right direction now so i'll be looking forward to doing that in may um get some pictures of some indie cars that um what was the start like was the start pretty i mean it, it had a big crowd there right this year they had a pretty big crowd yeah so, i mean and it's pretty crazy like even after 24 hours like they're still the cars are pretty close i mean you think about the past few years at, at the rolex 24 like the i mean the finish comes down to cars passing for the lead 
with just you know a few laps left to go so well, those guys were banging on each other yeah exactly you know? so it's amazing how close the cars stay together and the starts are always really close and then you know they get a little more spread out but you know pit stops right. and everything cautions you know bunch them back together um but before we so we'll do a little recap of the race but before we do that so our guest today is alex lloyd um former indycar driver um, a big standout, and I, and I guess I don't think it was called the Road to Indy back then, but big standout in the in in the latter series two IndyCar won. I mean, completely almost swept the entire Indy Lights season, won the championship. I think won the Freedom One Hundred. Um, I mean, great guy. I mean, he was definitely a rising star in, in IndyCar racing, and you know he drove in several Indy Five Hundreds, and it was just really really great to you know get to talk to him. Um, and I mean, I, I knew he would be a good interview, but I, I think we both would agree that I, I think he probably it was is one of the most honest guests we've ever had. I agree, and and uh, yeah, that's the fairest assessment there is. And he just flat says talks about his time, you know, being a big time, big time race car driver, and yeah. having no money. Uh, you know, doing it basically for free. And uh, he goes into that and uh, hats off to him because, you know, that that's a big ego blow to some guys. And and I understand why. And uh, but for him to be that honest, it, it really, um, you know, that type of honesty makes you <laughs> makes me a fan of you. You know, absolutely. And I, I and I really walked away from this discussion a big fan of Alex Lloyd. So, um, Oh, great guy. Yeah, big, absolutely. Great guy. Um, yeah, no, I didn't definitely, you know, we'll definitely have him back on again if, if he'd come on because he was great to talk to. And, you know, maybe I know we've talked about doing, we'll definitely do some kind of Indy 500 preview show, but I definitely think he'd be great for that. Yeah, man. And, um, I think he'd be excellent at that. And I just, Again, he's just, yeah. And he took, I mean, we talked to him for like two hours, so we really appreciate, you know, all the time that, you know, he gave us. And he, so, and he's one of these people that, um, you know, we've talked to some drivers like this who have normal day jobs now, you know, regular eight to five jobs where, you know, racing is just kind of thing of the past. And I, I mean, you know, people know, you know, he was joking saying that he doesn't wear the shirt. We need to get him a shirt though that says, I drove the Indy 500. Right. But, you know, he says, I don't wear the shirt. Like, I don't tell people, like, hey, I drove the Indy 500. But people are aware of it. Like, you know, he'll bring it up and passing or whatever. But, you know, he just has a normal job now. So he don't get to talk about racing. So a lot of these guys like that love to, you know, kind of talk about their past and, um, you know, kind of reminisce on it. And I mean, well, you know, uh, he definitely has a lot, I mean, to be proud of. I mean, you know, he may not sure. have had all the results that he wanted, but once again, he drove in several Indy 500s. I mean, he had tons of success in the series before IndyCar. And I, I and I think part of the issue was, you know, he did, he, there were some things that fell out of line with some of the bigger IndyCar teams that he, he was kind of in line to drive for and things didn't really align his way. So that's part of the reason I think why, you know, he may not have had the success he wanted, but yeah, he just, um, you know, and I always say this, like, it's a, it's a lot smaller scale for me. Right. Um, but to go have a, a normal job after owning your own business for a long time or being around something like auto racing, 
it, it doesn't sound like it would be tough, but it is tough because you, you've lived your life a total different way. And, and that, that has been your life. Like you, you woke up in the morning thinking about it and you went to bed late at night thinking about it and it kind of becomes your identity. And, uh, it's just this weird thing as you go through life, if you have to transition, um, I imagine for someone like Alex, it's, it's just tough. You know, it, it has to be so hard. Yeah. And I, I think Alex just does a really good job just representing, um, you know, it being a race car driver. And I think it's misinterpreted by a lot of people when people think race car driver, they, a lot of people probably think like, Oh, wealthy, someone, Playboy. Who's, you know, playboy yeah. flying on planes, you know, mm-hmm. like Chris, Chris Hemsworth, um, James Hunt, <laughs> Chris Hemsworth <laughs> play James Hunt. You know what I mean? Like right. James Hunt lifestyle. And and that's just not how it is. I mean, he talks literally about being a, you know, being in the IndyCar race in Las Vegas, which you know he, he's walking around town and people know him, and he's almost like the celebrity, and he can't even afford a sandwich. And and that's just right. something that a lot of people I don't think realize. Like, there's a lot of stuff behind the scenes of racing that drivers are. Some drivers are driving for free. Some drivers are, I mean, are having to pay for their rides. Like, it's not all glamorous and. He, he just does a really good job with kind of representing what racing it is all about. And and don't get me wrong. There's drivers out there who makes make millions and millions of drivers. M- m- I can't even talk. Who There's drivers out there who make millions and millions of dollars, but um, that's far and far, far in between for sure. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. And, and uh, he just was able to, you know, describe it and, and, um, Man, just hats off to him for being so honest, though. I mean, I know a lot of guys that have go through stuff like that, and they and they just can never be honest about it. And um, and that's no slight against him. I mean, that's their lives. But I really appreciate anybody who can be honest about it. Oh, absolutely. And, um, but oh. yeah, so it, that's a great interview, and we're excited to present it. And we recorded this, I think it was before Christmas. So we have several that oh, yeah. we're still trying to get to from December. So, um, yeah, December was a great month for interviews. <laughs> it's hard to get them all out. Uh, but yeah, we were very lucky to, uh, month of December, man. We, we got, uh, Christmas was definitely in the month of September or September, December for us. So, and we have, um, yeah, and we're working on some other interviews coming up that I've talked to, I've told you a couple names. So I made some connections of, 24 hours of Daytona. So really excited about a couple of those. And hopefully, hopefully they pan out because they'll, they'll be pretty good. Really good. Yeah. And I, and I, hopefully the other thing we talked about that we hope to do hopefully March or April, whatever, whatever we can get it all edited together. And uh, we kind of have a week of interviews planned um, oh, yeah. where we drop a show every day. And, uh, but it's a very specific driven set of interviews. Um, so we're very excited about that. We're finalizing the interviews for that now. And, uh, man, we just trying to bring different perspectives and different ways of, of, um, presenting these stories. So, and I, you know, I've said this many times, hats off to Aaron who has to edit everything. He, he tracks down the people, you know, he, he did go to Daytona as a fan, but he also was working down there getting 
setting up interviews and getting contacts. So thanks, bud. I really appreciate it. Oh, no problem. Um, and then, yeah, well, we, we actually recorded it. A pretty big name IndyCar driver last, oh, it was on Monday, it was right before I left for Daytona. Um, yep. And I actually got to talk to him at Daytona a little bit, so it was cool. So that, that one will be really good, and we were joking with him because he joined our Zoom meeting at um, 2 a.m., two days before. Yeah, it was like some crazy time, yeah. And he says he didn't do it, so somebody joined on behalf of him at some point. But uh, no, good dude. I really enjoyed talking to him. Fan, fan favorite for sure. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, so before we get into Alex Lloyd, quick rundown of 24 Hours at Daytona. First off, how much of the race did you actually watch, Scott? I watched probably seven hours, eight hours. Hmm. Um, I, I can't – man, I just cannot do the overnight. Like, right. I know, like <laughs> – I physically I buddy, can't do it. I know my buddy Jacob, Um, I think he did the full – because he was, a, he was down, the, down the road – at um his buddy's house and they were um they his his car i saw his car when i got home today and i was like i bet so he's spent the night there and they're watching the full 24 hours that's good though good for them man because i know i know he does he likes watching the full 24 hours and yeah i mean that's rough um i like to plan it where i can spend more time in daytona where i can actually stay at the track for the full 24 hours and actually like camp but that that gets really expensive like if you had a motorhome like that'd be cool like i'd be all and if you could have a motorhome and have it there in like the you know the third and fourth turn of the oval that would i mean I, i'd be down for that but that's expensive and i think that stuff books really quick oh i'm sure yeah i'm not, i've never looked into it obviously, i know when like I'm jacob sure went before and i he he listens to most of our episodes so if you're listening jacob we appreciate it but anyway like when he went a couple of years ago i think they actually like they stayed in the track full 24 hours and they didn't have a tent or anything. Like they just like slept oh. in the stands. I think it just, stayed Oh wow. Up. And that's, wow. that's brutal, man. And I tell you right now, la- that would not have worked last night because <laughs> that was brutal. Like, did you see no the, way. did you see the video of the spotters up there inside those tents that they no. had on top of the thing? So they had spotters standing in top of, uh, inside of uh, these standing tents. Um, so they could spot, they had clear on the front of them so they could spot the race. Um, really so yes i mean because i I can't imagine how freezing cold it would have been on top of those grandstands and i don't know if if people are watching on youtube right now i have like lines on my face from like getting like windburn or whatever so yeah it it was brutal you would not have been because my my dad was done after about seven o'clock so yeah he and i would have been if i had been there he and i had been sitting in the car together getting warm that's for sure Oh, I'm sure. We probably would have left you and went to Hooters across the street and then come back. It's probably what we would have Wing House. Wing House is, is the spot um, well, there. Wing House, whatever. I don't know if there's Hooters around there. Wing House. There's a Hooters right by there. Wing, Wing House Knock. is really good food, though. But anyway, so um, Elio wins Daytona second year in a row. He's got a little magic there with Shank Dunny. Yeah. So with Shank, first year with Shank, you know, him, Pazano, Tom Bloomquist, and Oliver Jarvis. So congratulations to them. Great to see. Um, I mean, man, what a – I guess it's – I want to say it's all in the same year, but what a great year, couple of years for Shank. I mean, Indy 500, oh, wow. then Daytona. I mean, it's looking good for that team. I mean, it's that it's, it's just amazing um, what well, that team has I really think- overcome. 
And I think he could, I mean, without speaking with Shank, I don't know him, but I, I would have to think that sports car racing is obviously, I would think, his first love because that's where he really got involved yeah, in sport absolutely. deep. So I remember when um, he said he was going yeah. into IndyCar racing, a lot of people, you know, kind of looked at him kind of weird, like, you know, that's not going to work. But obviously, you know, he proved people wrong big time. <laughs> he's sharp. He, he's uh, he's determined. He's sharp. And it sounds like, and we've talked about this before, it sounds like it's a real family affair, too. Like, his wife mm-hmm. sounds to be very involved in what they do, which is great. I mean, um, and I think that only makes it better. Right. Oh, absolutely. So, LMP2, um, Dragon Speed won. So, that was a Pata Award, Colton Herta, Devlin De Francisco, and Eric Lux. So that was like IndyCar power team kind of, minus Eric Lux. Right. I mean, three IndyCar drivers, so it was really cool to see them. Um, that was a car we were talking about, really bright, like fluorescent colors. Yeah, beautiful race car. Oh, yeah. 90s colors, so I like it. LMP3, Riley Motorsports. Um, Philippe Fraga, Gar Robinson, Kevin Burlo, and Michael Cooper. GTT Pro. Um, this was actually the first Rolex win. Path Motorsports, Philippe Nasser, um, who actually tested IndyCar, I think, and he's done some yep. Formula One testing, I believe. Um, Matt Campbell, Matthew Jarmanet. Yeah, I'm not even going to try to pronounce some of these names. And then GTD, Wright Motorsports, Jan Halen, Ryan Hardwick, Richard Leeds, and Zachary Robicon. How many how many cars is uh which will be I guess GTP starting next year, but how many cars does that the top division have? Is it like ten, roughly nine or ten? I think so. LMP one, there's only what like five or six. Well, I mean I there's the two Ganassi cars, Wayne Taylor. Um I mean there's I think there's seven or eight. Right. Um, I, man, I would if like if they could get another five cars in that division. Yeah, I think that would be the perfect field. Like, I don't know why I would. I don't know why I want more cars because it was close racing. But I feel like if they had like just maybe another five cars in that division, it with along with the same level of cars all the way through that it would be just unbelievable racing. I mean, which it already is, but I, I don't know why. It, it, there's something that's stuck in my head. Like, they're just maybe four to five or six cars short in that upper tier to really have put on their best show. Right. Yeah, it's just like the LMP3 really adds a lot, I think. Um, and, and we talk about this in our in the preview episode, tribute episode we did for Rolex with Pete Halsmer and Mimo Gidley. Obviously, it's changed a little bit since they both have raced, especially since Pete raced. But it's the LMP3 really. You, I could really. I know Mimo was saying like LMP3 cars are a lot faster than the GT cars, but I saw a lot of GT cars passing at LMP3 cars. So there's they're pretty close. So it really adds a lot um, to it. And I, I I can only imagine like how difficult it has to be as a driver depending on what class you're in, like when we talk about this a little bit, but like, you know, having to worry about either faster cars passing you or slower cars, or if you're in like LMP2 or LMP3, you're having to worry about faster cars and slower cars. 
So right. that's gotta be tough. And yeah, I could definitely, I was paying more attention to that on the track. Um, so it was really cool. But Speaking he, of Mimo, he ran, he finished on the podium, right? Yeah. His race. I think he finished third. I think so too. So congratulations. So hopefully to him. we'll see him. I, uh, hopefully this is a stepping stone to get him back into, you know, the big cars and hopefully he'll be in the 24 hours of Daytona next year at a minimum. Right. He's definitely and, proved and speak, that he can still be successful. And speaking of podium finishes, we got to talk about Robert Wickens. Yeah. Um, making his return competitive. You know, I mean, he raced a little bit last year, but really back to the upper tier of the sport. Um, or at least heading back to the upper tier of the sport. And he finished on the podium in his in his race. So congratulations to him. That is, uh, like he said, he won the win, but he sure had tears. He was holding back as he was coming to the, as the race was ending. You know, I, I can't imagine to, to just work so hard every day to overcome what he's overcome uh, oh. to get back. I, and he's I just, competitive as ever. I mean, he is quick yeah. still. So it'll yeah, be cool man, to see kind of where he goes from there. Yeah. I agree. Congratulations to him and and um, man, you just—I I don't know if anybody—I don't know if you could say enough about it, really. No, I agree. Well, I think um, we've—I think we've talked enough. I will say, first off, thanks everyone for listening and watching. If you haven't already, like, subscribe on YouTube. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. We definitely appreciate it. Um, yeah, give a shout you. out. Thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who watches and subscribes. And um, and I just, I know I've said this many times on a broken record, but thank you so much. And I will give a shout out to one of our partners, um, racercollect.com. Patrick Patton actually saw him this morning after I landed from Daytona at Charlie Brown's. So it was cool. That was actually the first time I physically met him in person. I mean, we've met via Zoom before, but physically me so that, that was cool it's kind of funny to see him there um but great guy definitely check our racercollect.com um he's helped us he helped us get one of our guests that we interviewed last week so um big thanks to him and well he's just a really nice guy yeah. and he's got a really good business concept and yep. uh i just hope it it goes great for him because i know he's well. putting his, and i know he's putting so much work on that so man just best of luck to him it's good, you know, it's good to see like people that other people that are passionate about something. I agree. I agree. So. And he is very passionate about it. And um what I thought was kind of interesting is when we did our chili bowl preview and he he was speaking with one of our other guests, Doug Wright, and he and Doug really kind of had connection on a few things and um and that's really cool to see. I mean, because then you know, relationships it's cool to see relationships being built. And um just glad to, that I'm glad that you've introduced him to the show and to me. And, and, um, I think he does, I think what he does is needed, yeah. frankly, if you're going to, if you're going to buy collectibles, I think he, it, what he provides is very needed. Oh, absolutely. Well, I think we've talked enough. So, um, yeah, thanks everyone for watching and listening. And um, yeah, I hope everyone enjoys the Alice Lloyd interview. Yeah, everybody take care. Thank you. Our guest today is a 2007 Indy Lights champion. He also competed in four Indianapolis 500s. We're joined by Alex Lloyd. Hey, Alex.
How's hey, it going? It's going great. How about you? Great. It's it's going really good. Um, so, well, thank you so much for um, coming on. You know, we definitely appreciate having you on. And, um, you know, as I was saying, like, you know, I kind of grew up at the track and, um, you know, getting to see you kind of work work your way up through Indy Lights and, you know, get to drive in the Indy 500 was pretty cool. So it was really cool to talk to you. No, it's nice to reminisce about those times as well, because, um, yeah, you know, like it, it was a while ago now. It's crazy to think how I'm my last IndyCar race of 2011. So it's been more than a decade. Um, so always nice to, to, you know, reminisce and think back on, uh, on those years for, you know, a huge amount of fun. Oh yeah, I'm sure. And, um, you know, like me and Scott were just talking, I mean, you know, you had a pretty good career. I'm mean, obviously, um, you're very dominant at Indy Lights. Um, talk a little bit about how you first got interested in racing. Like, what's your earliest memory of being involved with racing? You know, I, there's two, uh, and they probably I don't know what came first, but I, I, you know, number one, distinctly remember watching Ayrton Center in F1. Since growing up back in back in England, I think it was the, it was the Senna Prost time, and just you know being. Um, my dad watching it and me just starting to get some sort of insight into racing. Nigel Mansell being a, a you know, being in the UK, being a huge thing. Um, and, you know, and then my dad like taking me to a go-kart track, like an indoor, just, you know, same as like a K1 speed or something that we have here, just an indoor go-kart track uh, that was, you know, down the road from me on a, you know, every Saturday. And I just started getting into it that way. And, you know, obviously from the American side, the Nigel Mansell moving over to IndyCar was like, that was the, you know, the, the big eye opener to me. But, but yeah, it, it was those early years of just, you know, just seeing it on TV, watching, enjoying it. it what, my dad was into it, but he wasn't like a, you know, like a hardcore racing fan. Um, but for whatever reason, it just captivated me. And, you know, from there, I just would, beg and push him constantly just like hey take me to a track take me here can we get this can we get this old go-kart and take it there and you know next thing you know one thing leads to another and the ball starts rolling and you know then it's it's hard to stop it once it's going yeah absolutely yeah we we talk to so many uh people and and um especially drivers who come through the open wheel racing starting karting um you know, it's it's funny, you know, there's some who have these extensive racing backgrounds and then there's the others who have no racing background and um, kind of tell us what it was like, you know, when you really first started running competitively in carts and kind of what was that time period like? I, I mean, looking back now, it was one of the best periods of time that I can remember because you know, and, and loads of drivers have, have said this. I mean, even Senna said it in his documentary, you know, the, the documentary Senna, you know, there was quotes of him saying, you know, like it's the purest form of racing. And, you know, so many people say it, but I think it's true. You know, you, you look back now and you think there was no real pressure. It was, you know, you were just purely doing it for fun. There's no career. There's no really career aspirations to that level of, to that degree. You know, you were just there racing. Um, and, you know, the great thing with go-karting is it's, you know, it's so close, it's hyper-competitive, you know, you're inches wheel to wheel, um, you know, you're, it, it, it was just that sort of first sense of like, wow, this is fun. And, you know, again, I look back now, at like some of the people I was competing against in those early years of, you know, go-karts and it's, you know, it's your Lewis Hamilton's, it's Mike Conway, um, you know, Oliver Jarvis, who's won Le Mans, like, you know, and Paul Darista, who now, you know, raced F1, now commented, just, you know, a, a sea of 
uh, of people that are, you know, have had success on both sides of the pond. Um, and, and yeah, it was just, you know, like, it, and it was just fun, just a lot of, you know, you know, parents hanging out and having a few drinks in the motorhomes after the races, the kids, you know, playing rollerblading or skateboarding or whatever, you know, whatever it was we could after as when we put the races down and we were just traveling weekend after weekend. And yeah, like I look back now, I think what an amazing time. I guess it's a bit like when people, you know, look back on school in later life and right. in, at the time you're like, oh, this is stressful, there's a lot going on when you look back at later life and you're like, wow, that was like the best period period of life. Like right. I had no real responsibilities, <laughs> I just went and had fun. And that was what go-karting was like. It's, you know, just pure fun, pure enjoyment before the real stress of like, okay, I need to make this a career and I've got to get to the next step. Didn't really think about it back then. How long did it take you uh, to realize that, hey man, I, I really got a talent for this? Um, and that coupled with, um, you know, obviously you're talking about Mike Conway, great race car driver. Obviously everyone knows about Lewis Hamilton. Um, so when you were competing against him, when you were a kid and you're having success and you're having what I assume success against them, how could you, could you kind of see your future starting to develop at that time? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know when it, it really happened. Like, I, I remember very clearly in, like, my first year or two, and I remember my dad saying, like, there some, somehow, somehow it came up about, like, you know, you'll win a race. And I hadn't. I, I hadn't. I was just new rookie, just, you know, just having a little bit of fun on the weekends. And I, I remember distinctly the first year or two feeling like, like, wait, what? I'll, like, I'll win a race? Like, I, I don't <laughs> think, like, that doesn't seem to be a, a thing. So definitely the beginning, it, you know, it was just, you know, I had, I had no idea I had any talents. It wasn't like I just jumped in and was like, oh, I'm winning races. Like, it was just, you know, I was driving around like everybody else. Uh, I guess maybe when I was about 10, which was like a couple of years in, like second or third year in, just suddenly things started to click. I think I finished third in a like one of the British Championship rounds. Um, you know, obviously, like this is, again, competing against Lewis Hamilton and like Ben Hanley, who I know has raced uh, a few Indy 500s, sure. but has had a lot of success in Europe. And again, a lot of different drivers like that. Obviously, at the time, you don't know who these people are. There's no indication sure. that Lewis Hamilton is going to go on to be a seven-time world champion. And, you know, you're just, you're just racing with these people. But I think it was about at the age 10 or 11. Uh, I think age 11, I finished fourth in the British Championship. And I was like, okay, like there's something here. But it probably took until I was maybe, you know, maybe a couple of years later, the junior junior intercontinental A uh, class um, in out in Europe. Um, and I remember I, it took me a while to get that first win. And there was, you know, I'd been close. And there was just, you know, one weekend where it was pouring with rain. Um, you know, we had the three heats and then the final. And in the heats, they put you, you know, you stagger the grid position. It's like you'll start the front one race, the back, the middle. They'll take the average and then you'll see where you start for the final. And I won every heat by, you know, half a lap and then, you know, won the, the final. And I think that was like that first time where it was like, I mean, I, I can to this day remember that I, I don't know if I've had a feeling like that after a race, that sort of first victory and the first sort of feeling of, okay, there's something really clicked here. It's not like I was doing, I was doing well, but no, then something happened after that first victory. And then it was sort of like off to the races. It was like, okay, confidence was up. Everything was good. Um, so I would say it wasn't too long after that, that I started having like really serious thoughts that like, okay, this will be my career. Like I'm going to make it, you know, all the way up naively at the time, if I look back, 
I, I think it was, you know, it was in a period of time again with me, there was Jensen Button in the UK, Dan Weldon, Dan had obviously, you know, come over and was doing great in America. Jensen Button at, at like a very young age was in Formula One. And I was naively like, okay, that's just how it's going to work. Like, I'm going to do that. I'm going to win this. And I'm going to win that. And then I'll, I'll be promoted up here at a young age. Naturally, it doesn't happen like that at all. You suddenly then the, the reality hits that of how hard it is to try and make it. But um, yeah, I'd say probably about age 14, 15, my confidence was was pretty high at that point that like, okay, there's there's talent here and, you know, I'll, I'll you know, I'll, I'll find a way up. I, at that age, I was just naive to the, the budget requirements that are needed in racing. Uh, I think my dad had shielded me a little bit from like the actual, you know, um, challenges that comes with moving up the ranks. But, um, but yeah, I, I was sort of all, you know, at that point fully committed, you know, that was the only thing on my mind was my career will be, will be as a driver. Did you have any like goal at that point? Like, was it a race in Formula One or was it a race in IndyCar or was, or did you not really think about kind of where you wanted to race at that point? I did. I, you know, honestly, I kind of thought both. I, my, my original aim was like, I'd love to race in Formula One and I'd love to race in IndyCar. And a lot of that came from, again, from Nigel Mansell. I, I just thought it was so cool and, and vice versa with like Montoya right. and stuff. Uh, I just thought it was so cool when you see drivers in different disciplines. Yeah. And, you know, naturally the 500 had this allure as it does for everybody because you know you look at the f1 scene and and yes it's it's huge and now becoming increasingly huge even in, in america um you know with netflix and all this good stuff but there is you know, yes there's monaco flagship event but there's nothing to the level of where you have this just one standout race that you win this race or do well in that race and it can completely change your career and not just that it's just a different feeling like as, as we all know like just a different feeling that event to anything else you can experience you don't have that anywhere really in europe unless you're a sports car racer and you you know you go to le mans so i think for me there was always a, a like a, a pull towards america uh partly because of the cars the racing the, the 500 i think also just culturally too like i i don't know i always just liked coming over here and thought like this would be a great place to you know, to live and spend time and, you know, and race. So uh, I, I think I'd always had these sort of objectives of, of both. It became pretty clear that, you know, uh, F1 was a, a very hard place to get to unless you have some big budgets. At the time when I came to America, so just before the economy crashed, like there were opportunities. So America was always to me sort of like, it sounds cliche, but like the land of opportunity, Europe was this really slim narrow tunnel that was very difficult to see any light there unless you had a big wealthy benefactor that's you know paying for all your your racing and and this was pre the f1 teams picking up drivers i mean there, there was it was happening on a very small scale but like now a lot of these younger drivers are picked up by by teams i mean they still have to have huge budgets but um you know i think the the recruiting for drivers is happening at a younger age now with, with me it's like you had to get to get to that point with all that budget behind you and, and Europe was a clearly a difficult uh, place for that. So my eyes were, were definitely set on America from a, you know, from a pretty early age that I'd like to be there at some point. And you tested a formula one car, right? I think 2004. Yeah. Yeah. So there was a, um, an award that we have in the UK um, called the, the young driver of the year award. Uh, it was like it was sponsored by Autosport, the magazine, and McLaren. Um, and each year they take uh, you know six or seven uh, British young drivers 
get selected. They go up against each other in, a, in like a two or three day shootout. The winner of that gets, you know, some funding, which is very helpful. Um, a very nice watch. I remember that. And you get a, a you know, a test in a McLaren. So that was you know, obviously that part of the, the budget was, was, was obviously huge for me. I didn't, uh, especially that year, I didn't have any other budget. So that was crucial for me getting, you know, some seat time the next year. But then you had the opportunity to test in McLaren for McLaren a year later. So I got to do uh, to do that very similar to, you know, what we've just seen at McLaren yesterday with Pato going, you know, right. getting his his run. It's a very similar sort of situation. And in fact, my first test with, with McLaren, it was it was three of us out there. So it was Lewis's very first time in a McLaren uh, in a Formula One car. Myself and this guy called Jamie Green who raced DTM for for many years and the three of us had a sort of first test on that same day um same car in silverstone well that had to be quite the experience to you know get to obviously drive the probably i mean the fastest car i mean you you can drive i mean on a road course at least um so i'm sure yeah. that was a really cool experience it was mind-blowing uh, and i was lucky because it was dry like you know it's, it's, mm -hmm. it was in december in um at silverstone usually it's wet even if it's not raining that day it's been so cold that the ground is going to be wet from the day before it's never going to dry out and i really wanted to experience it in the dry and get the full feel for it um and yeah like uh, at that point you know i thought i was pretty well prepared you know i've been driving formula 3000 um and you know those cars at that time this was before gp you know gp2 or anything they were the quickest car that you could drive outside of you know it, it, like in the ladder system in europe outside of going into formula one so i'm like well you know there is no you know extra step there in terms of car performance so like uh, you know it, it's it's going to be it's going to be a lot but it's it, it's going to be manageable and, and honestly those first few laps i was just it, you know, it was like, I don't actually know how humans can do this. Like the speed was so intense. Right. Like there was no linear progression. Like normally you put your foot on the gas and you feel that speed go up. It was just a light switch. It was like, okay, I'm doing 60 mile an hour. Okay. Now I'm doing 200. And it just felt like you couldn't, it was just absolutely insanity. Um, you know, after a few laps, your brain adjusts to the speed and it, you know, and then you're like, okay, now I can actually like focus on what I'm doing. But the first few laps were, were just mind blowing. And of course, this was back in the day when those cars were like in 2004. I mean, they, they still had sort of the, the thousand horsepower. They were really, really quick machines. And then obviously they slowed them down a bit. And, you know, as, as, as happens, they've, they've started to, you know, to, to get a little faster as technology improves, but they're still some of the, you know, some of the quickest cars out there. So it was cool to, to jump into it in the V10 or whatever it was before, yeah. um, before you know the hybrid era came in and you know you had that amazing sound and all oh of yeah that, that sound yeah they, I mean, um, at the time you take it for not you don't take it for granted but like you didn't know that that was going to go now when i you know see video clips of of that day it's like okay that was cool that was you know that was that was really cool to experience that they were testing the older ferraris at ims in the summer and i remember getting woken up on a sunday and just hearing that v10 or whatever sound and that there's nothing like it that was that was how I so I, I for a while I lived at uh, a bit like what you do with Speedway but compared to Silverstone I lived half a mile a mile away from from Silverstone back in the day when the F1 teams just mm -hmm. could test whenever they want it was just <laughs> open so you know I was maybe 18 19 years old and 
same thing. You just wake up, you just hear the engines revving, and then you 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 know the cars would go out, and you'd be like, oh, F1 must be testing today, and you could just drive down there and go take a look. But that's the sound as an alarm clock was, um, yeah, that was that was yeah. pretty special. You know, and I'm sure at that point in your life you thought this is where I'm going to be. You know, obviously it's all lining up for me. This is exactly where I'm going to be. Um, kind of take us through when you started realizing, man, it, it may not happen for me in Formula One, uh, and I got to start setting my sights somewhere else, which obviously led you to America. Yeah, I think so. I, I remember distinctly. So after the year that I won the um, that Auto, Auto Sport Award, um, I think I finished second in the championship in Formula Renault. It was Lewis won the championship. I was second. I think. Mike Conway third or fourth. Anyway, it was there was we were in that sort of group. I got that award, got some funding to compete a part year in the European Formula 3000, won some races, had a bit of bad luck with some breakdowns, but won races and got a call from Red Bull saying, like, hey, like Dr. Helmut Marco there, like, hey, we might fund you in GP2 next year, uh, the equivalent of, of Formula Two now. So at that point, I knew that that was like the defining moment because I'm like, I don't have any funding and I have no real option. And I, I know I was sort of concerned then because, you know, Red Bull had a bunch of drivers. They weren't, it, it was very unsure whether they were going to take anybody else on. That didn't play out. Um, it, you know, it didn't happen. And I think at that point, I was pretty panicked in terms of, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I remember reaching out to a bunch of sports car teams. I was just like, you know, reaching out to, you know, randomly cold emailing folks in the Japanese, like the Formula Nippon class there, you know, like they probably, I don't even know if they could read English. Like I I was just trying anything I could to find something. Um, So I was really concerned at that point. I was like, how am I going to take it to the next step? And I got, I don't remember how it happened. I think it was, so there's Roger Bailey on the Indy Light side of things or the Pro Series as well at the time. Somehow I'd got connected to him and he was like, hey, there are teams out here in, in the Indie Lights that you should speak to. And, you know, they might not, you know, the budget side might not be an issue. Um, so, you know, why don't I put you in touch with a few people? And I got put in touch with uh, Gary Peterson at AFS. And he was, you know, like, hey, why don't you, you know, if you want to pay for a race, you can come out. I'll put you in the car. You, know, you got to pay for it. But if you do well you know, there might be something that we could do. So that was like the first little glimmer of, of hope of like, okay, um, we still had to pay for the race and we didn't have any, like literally no budget. My dad, everything that he had had, he'd poured into racing, it was gone. So our only option was, okay, well, we can refinance the house. We can get out, I think it was like $50,000 or something like that. That was enough to pay for one weekend in St. Petersburg in 2006 with, with AFS Racing. and yeah, it was a sort of do or die. Like, okay, we'll go there. If it goes well, Gary Peterson says he will fund the rest of the year. So yeah, that was like a full pressure weekend and it, it did go well. I think we ended up on the podium. Um, I think we had an, I can't remember we had an issue in race one, but um, yeah, so we had to come from a little bit further back on the grid and ended up on the podium and was like, okay, we, you know, I think it was between myself and Rafael, Rafael Matos, who was like the two quickest people. And that led to a, a you know a full time year, which then led into sort of a free drive with Sam Sam Schmidt in the Indy Light series. So that was like the really the turning point because it was you know it was looking pretty grim with no funding, no 
like Europe was like, hey, it doesn't matter what you've achieved. If you don't have funding, we cannot put you in a car, which is kind of how it is today, to be honest, over here in America. But at that point, there were still these few people that were like, you know, like Gary was paying for it all himself. And he's like, if you're good and you can win races for me, like I'll, I'll, I'll fund this. Um, so it was just the right time because then obviously the economy crashed and everything sort of, sort of changed a little bit since then. But, um, but yeah, it gave me that one, that one shot, which worked out. And that, that led me to two great years in Indy lights, which obviously then was the stepping stone into IndyCar. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. obviously the 2000, I was going to say the 2007 season, um, you just absolutely dominate. I mean, you won the first five races and you won three other races. And actually at the time I was looking at this, it was a record. And I think it's, it's beaten now by Kyle Kirkwood, but it, you had the most consecutive wins um, during a season, which was five in a row and then eight in a season, which was a record as well. And there was one more, what was the other one? There was another um, five wins in a season, eight, um, Oh, 10 career and most points scored. Um, yeah, most points scored in a series. Yeah, and I think that year too, at that point, uh, I was the only person to have ever won on the road course and oval Indy, which was cool, which, uh, you know, has been now. I think there are obviously other people that have done that, but that was, right. you know, I, I sort of got that, which was, a, which was a cool thing. So, yeah, that was like the season where everything came to that. I felt like that was like the, the culmination of like everything that had happened to that point because – because I'd never really had much of a budget to play with, I'd never been in what would be considered the top car. Um, so I can, you know, the year I finished second in Formula Renault, I was in a car that, yeah, was not going to, you know, it, it wasn't the top team. It was a, you know, sort of a, you know, a decent team, but, you know, you're not, you're not with the team that's won the championship X number of years in a row. And, you know, and it was always like, do the best with what I've got. And then, you know, an, an AFS in in the, the limited year that I did in 2006 in Indy Lights. I mean, I think we was it one win, two win, two wins in that in that that year. Uh, I think we, we did six or eight races, something like that. But again, like AFS was not you know was not the team to beat at that point. Um, it was very clearly Sam Schmidt, and it was very clearly that number seven Lucas Oil car was the car that every year the guy goes into that car, they win the championship, and like that's the thing. So for me, when I moved into that into that series you know that seat it was very clear that like you have to win and there are no excuses like if, if i don't win that's on me you know like i have the best car i have the best team i have everything at my disposal um i'm also not paying for the drive in fact i was even being paid a little bit of money which was sort of unheard of in an in indie light side right. so it was you know it was like okay like you deliver um and you know the the flip side of that too was that you know, I had all that confidence that I had the best people around me and, you know, and it just, it, it was one of those years that, that for the most part couldn't have gone any better. I mean, you know, there are obviously always times and places like I, you know, I can think to, you know, a few different reliability issues or things that we had that cost us a couple of wins, but yeah, I mean, we won 50% of the, the races that year. I think we locked up the championship with a few races to go. So it was a really like as fun a year as you can have, because yes, there was pressure, but we, because of how much of a lead we built in the championship so early, you could really just enjoy it. And we just had a great car where it was oval road course, you know, actually the road course we did have to improve a little bit, but oval, we had a great car and yeah, it was, you know, it was just one of those years where just 
everything came to, together. It, it made me sort of a hot commodity in the, you know, in the IndyCar space, like, you know, lots of team owners reaching out. And, you know, it was, it was that sort of period of time where I, to me, I was like, okay, it, it's not, I'm not indie, in IndyCar yet. I haven't hit that sort of big time, but I've, I've got everything here. Like uh, to me at that point, I'm like, I like, I, I feel like a good career is going to happen from this point. Like I felt like every, every box had been checked you know, everything was going on that right way, the conversations I was having. And yeah, I felt like I'd sort of overcome the challenges of getting there. Again, maybe in retrospect, somewhat naively, because, you know, there was a lot of things that happened after that. But at that moment in time, I was like, okay, like, that's everything I can do. I've proven myself. Um, you know, at the end of that season, I got uh, Ganassi asked me to do, they used to have the, 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 I don't know what they used to call it, but it was like a, a split test day where if you took a junior driver, you could get, you'd be granted X number of test days a year. And you had to just give them a couple of hours of running basically. And then the regular driver could take over. So I went to Sebring, drove Ganassi's Indy car with Scott Dixon, you know, and I came away from, from that day, you know, being, I think it was maybe like a 10th or two quicker than, than he had been. And it was like, then Ganassi said like, Oh, come and do our, our grant, our, Grandam at the time sports car race, um, you know, on the Sonoma weekend. So I was kind of jumping in with them and it was just, it was that period of time where it was like, everything's falling into place. Like nothing could be better. Um, like I said, somewhat naively, cause then it all, you know, it, it doesn't, it never works out, uh, or, you know, in this case it didn't, but, um, but yeah, 2007 was that year where everything fell in, into place. Do they have the, um, the road to Indy, scholarship back then no no sadly not no there, there was nothing i think you know, winning the championship from for at least from like a prize money or funding perspective i mean there, there probably was prize money but it all rooted back to the team because you know they were obviously paying for the for the seat but uh yeah there was no sort of scholarship that that helped ladder you up into anything it was um yeah you sort of you know on your own from that perspective we've um We've spent a little time, Aaron and I, uh, here recently, we went to the Chris Griffiths test at Speedway and, uh, we, we were trying to get on some of the younger drivers. Um, uh, we had Jack Miller's son do an interview last night, which we'll release. We've had Jagger Jones on the show, uh, which is PJ Jones's son, uh, Parnelli's grandson. Um, he's running, uh, USF 2000 this year. Uh, and, uh, there's a few others we're going to have on and, and it's just, it's, uh, really interesting to see these young guys as they're at that stepping stone in their, in the sport. And, you know, you can hear them kind of saying the same things like you're saying, you know, like, you know, it's all, you know, at that point it's still all just it, all your dreams and hopes are still in front of you. Yeah. And it, it's still, it's really interesting to, to hear them talk. And it's interesting to hear you talk about it in retrospect. And, um, so, I mean, you, you obviously proved yourself, um, and then you, you got some chances in IndyCar. Um, did it, did that deal start off the way you wanted it to, or was it ever quite like you wanted it to? No, it, you know, so, so I basically, I, I had a, I had a few different opportunities. I think, um, I think I remember Ray Hall coming to me. Um, I think it was Jeff Simmons was driving at the time, and like that car was potentially up for grabs. Um, I had John Barnes at Panther had come to me, maybe it was Vito's car, I forget who was in that car at the time, but like there was potentially, or maybe it was 
uh, Andretti uh, for Dario's car that was, you know, basically they said, we want you in that car, which I was like, perfect. And then I had Ganassi who was saying like, hey, you know, we we don't have a full-time car, but we know Dan Weldon is, at this point, they were saying Dan's going to go to NASCAR. Like that was sort of where his head was at. And we want to sort of groom you and you be the next, you know, the next guy, take over Dan's car and, and you're sort of off. Uh, the Andretti thing ended up not being able to happen just because Hideki came in with, Hideki Muto came in with, with a fair bit of Honda funding. And they basically were like, hey, like, you know, we got to take the funding on this one. So that led me with, you know, potentially some smaller teams or, or Ganassi. And it's naturally very, you know, when it's Ganassi, it's like, okay, like that's a big team. There's opportunities in some of the sports car stuff. It was like, clearly I need to go that route. And, you know, I can take a year of, you know, being in the 500, maybe, you know, competing in the Daytona 24 hours and a few other bits and pieces, getting some testing in, and then I'll be really ready for 2009. That was sort of what I promised. I think it was like a four-year contract that I'd signed. And first year of my first, you know, it was definitely a little bit up and down. Uh, the sort of first year, I didn't get much time in the car, but whenever I did get time in the car outside of the 500 in 2008, which was a little bit of a challenge after after a crash that we had, but um, the the testing that I did in the actual Ganassi car, because that was a, a loaned out, sort of I was loaned out to, to Ray Hull, but the testing in the Ganassi car, again, like alongside, you know, their top drivers we were there, we were competitive. I thought that, okay, at some point, like this is going to happen. The big challenge that I had was, you know, Dan did indeed leave at the end of that year. I think he went to Panther and there was my seat. But that was the year that Dario had gone to NASCAR with uh, Ganassi. And he basically, you know, he'd had a, a crash. I think he'd like hurt his ankle or, or something like that. And, you know, and he didn't really want to do NASCAR, but he had a long-term contract with Ganassi. And they were either going to have to buy him out or provide him with some seat somewhere else. And, yeah, really what ended up happening just by pure bad luck is, you know, for, for me was, you know, Dario was like, okay, I'll, you know, instead of paying me out, I'll come back to IndyCar and I'll jump in, you know, in, in the Target car, which all of a sudden was like, ah, okay, Alex, like this, you know, this was your car. This was what, this was sort of your stepping stone into the big leagues um, in a championship winning material. Uh, we're going to have to try and like Dario's now going to come in. We, we, we've got to put him in. And now we're going to try and figure something out with you and we're going to try and find some funding. And that was like that first element of mm, things that, you know, this isn't going to be as easy. It hasn't gone to plan. Like that wasn't what I was promised. It wasn't what was supposed to happen. And, um, you know, and, and the, but they, you know, the team, I, I understood it. Like I understood the situation they're in. Um, but it was, yeah, it was frustrating. It was challenging. You know, we tried to find some funding. We got some races obviously with her energy and stuff like that. But it was, that was sort of the beginning of, you know, what was just, to me, just felt like, you know, you had all these sort of perfect cards, you know, handed to you, like you're in this prime situation and just, you know, external factors of just bad luck, you know, the economy, you know, having a complete crash so where sponsors are, you know, teams don't have a whole bunch of, of funding, you know, at their disposal, Um you know, and you've you've just got situations with Dario and things like that that have just you know eliminated the drive that you were sort of promised, 
that's now sort of on the back foot and, you know, I'm out of the racing scene. I'm not racing that much. Like, you know, it, there was just, it was sort of the start of situations. Um, I mean, again, we can go into this, but I had the, you know, the her energy sponsor, which we were going to take to Newman Haas. We'd signed on those guys defaulted on it. And it just, it was just a wave of what could have been that just kept getting stripped away that, you know, that ended up putting me in a, you know, in a position where I wasn't really able to, I mean, I just, yeah, I felt like I just never got a crack at IndyCar in, in a environment where I could actually sort of do what I'd done in Indy Lights and sort of, you know, transfer that. So, yeah, again, it's like when you look back on hindsight, it's like, you you know, you think everything's lining up and, you know, just with all of this, you don't, you, you never know. And I think in, like for me, when I look back, I just think there were so many unlucky moments. I don't know if there were any decisions I made that I could have done differently that would have, you know, I think I probably have done the same thing, but it just, you know, the well, circumstance meant that, you know, it never really ended up where I felt like I should have done. Yeah. You talk about checking boxes, Ganassi racing check. I mean, yeah. that's a no brainer. I mean, that's absolutely a no brainer. No, I mean, and, yeah, you have, you know, yes, it was a, you know, I, I think to a degree, a risk to not race and to know you're not going to race much the next year. But when Chip Ganassi says like, you know, like here's a four-year contract, you know, you are my guy for the number nine, I think it was number or 10, number 10 car when Dan leaves, you know, just race a little bit this year. We'll groom you. We'll give you a chance to learn off, you know, off Dixon, off Dan, and and then we're going to put you in and then you go for championships. I mean, you say, yes, okay, I'm in. The only exception to that would have been if, if the Andretti seat had become available because that would have been, you know, Dario's seat in a full-time season in one of the best teams. Like, okay, that would have been a different option. But yeah, I mean, beyond that, it's, you know, it's Penske and it's Ganassi. And, you know, when Chip says that, hey, we have all this and we'll, we'll, we'll you know, commit to your development, you jump right in. Um, but, you know, as I said, the, the challenge is that things can happen and it's not necessarily anybody's fault. It's just, you know, sometimes. This is the part of, this is the part of auto racing that's, um, I think it's the toughest uh, because unlike stick and ball sports, if you excel at your position and, and not only if you excel, I mean, there's, ex, there's exceptions of great players who have a lot of personal off the field troubles, but let's just say apples to apples and, and you're excelling at your position. Well, naturally they take that player and, and everybody tries to figure out how to fit him in because he excels. Or unfortunately, as in auto racing, you know, you're, I mean, I'm sure in your position, you're thinking, I, I, I've got the skills, you know, I've proven I can do this. And it's just got to be so frustrating um, when, when everything you're doing looks right on paper and you're doing everything right and it just isn't going your way. It, it, it is. Um, yeah, it, it's one of those sports that you know it isn't just down to to you. You know, there are other elements in there. There's, there's luck, there's timing, there's financials. But, you know, there's also just equipment. And that's like a, a big thing. And that was, you know, like for me, it was never more evident than in 2010 when I, you know, um, managed to, you know, scrounge a last minute deal with, with Dale Coyne, which you know, again, sort of on paper could have, you know, could, could have been a, a good thing, but it, again, timing wise, I think, you know, Justin had just left um, and, and the engineer that Justin Wilson had been working with, they'd left. 
So really, just before the season, like I joined, there was no engineering, there was no nobody. We literally didn't have an engineer for for the entire season. Um, so we were just trying to like an assistant engineer was trying to step up, and it was, you know, a situation where on the road courses at least we actually did really well on the ovals. Um, just yeah, we just happened to have somebody there that really understood ovals, and we, we did really well on those. I even punched above our weight at the time. But the road courses, it was just, you know, it was horrible. We were so slow. But because of being like a, you know, a young new driver, it's like you have this balance of like, I know I can do this. Like I'm, I'm watching, you know, drivers that I've competed with that I've like, I've been against in the same car and like, I can't get close. There's something wrong. But when you're the new driver, it's very difficult to, you know, for people to believe, well, you know, maybe this person just doesn't transition to that car and, you know, maybe this, this isn't right for them. And, you know, you maybe start to even believe that a little bit yourself. Like, well, is it me? Like, you know, am I just, you know, like not adapting to the car? What is it? Like in that case, the big sort of eye opener for me was the next year when Bourdais did the road courses in, in, in my car. I did the ovals, he did the road courses. And those first few races, he was in exactly the same position I was and was like, this is terrible. I mean, we brought in some engineers that year. So like they sort of started raising their game like throughout the year and, and into the following years, they sort of invested a little bit more heavily. But again, just like a, a prime example of, you know, luck not being on your side that, you know, you just happen to be in the car when there aren't sort of, you know, an engineering team to sort of help develop it. And, and yeah, like you just feel like your hands are totally tied in the like, yeah, you know, what can I do to, to stand out? How can I show that, like, you know, I know I have the talent, but I, I, I'm just not in an environment where it's, it's coming across, um, you know. And, and then again, like I said, you, you then deal with self doubt and things like that, and you know, it's just a, a really weird, difficult uh, career. Um, and again, like when things are going right, right, and if you, you know, you, you have the, the cards line up in your favor, you know, maybe you don't always experience that, but. Um, but in my case, yeah, there was just a lot of, uh, at least in the IndyCar side, there was a lot of things that didn't go in my favor. And yeah, you experience a lot of those frustrating moments. And I think more than anything after the fact, you know, the last 10 years or so, trying to rationalize that now has actually been a lot harder than in the moment. In the, in the moment, you know, you're like, okay, well, maybe there'll be something else. I'll, you know, I'll fight like th this is going to, it'll all work its way out. But then when you look back five years later after your last race and you're like, you still have that sort of anguish of, I know there was more to give. Like, I know that, you know, yes, you could say, okay, you made it, you made it to IndyCar, you raced X number of races in IndyCar, you know, you finished fourth, arguably third, the, I mean, crossed the line third in the 500. It got, you know, pushed back down to fourth, I think due to some, some politics and stuff after the race. But like, regardless, like you were there, you were, you know, you, 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 you know, like having a, a result as fourth in the Indy 500, like, you know, you competed in the 500 four times, like what more do you really want? Like that's, that's great. But, and it is, but you look back in of all those sort of moments and, you know, it, it yeah, it's, you know, you, you just know that you were able to give more and you were so close in some of these occasions, like the Ganassi thing, like just a few different things, you know, could have been very different. You know, you look at Dixon driving today and a lot of these guys that are still there, you know, you're like just, you know, one little thing here or there. And that's the, the beauty of what ifs in life and while you know while whether it's racing other careers just life in general like i mean uh, we all we all face that type of that type of thing where you have these sort of crossroads or these little incidents that happen that that change the trajectory slightly so while i'm happy that i got a, a good run at it and got some good results out of it 
yeah, you know, you spend 10 years trying to, you know, trying to not, you know, eat yourself up inside about all those little moments that, you know, that could have made it very different. Yeah. You know, um, and you're even in a stranger position, I think, because, and I hope this doesn't come across wrong. You race against someone as a child, you know, as a kid through teens, who's now considered maybe one of the world's best race car drivers ever. And I'm sure you're extremely competitive. I mean, you have to be. And I, I would think that'd be very hard to look at all that success and think, man, and I'm, and I, I'm not trying to say jealousy. I, I mean, just as a competitive person, I think that would be very hard to look at that and go, man, I've been that guy. Yeah. Uh, you know, no, it is, you know, um, you know uh, yeah, Lou, I mean, not so much now, but yeah, there, there's definitely, you know, a period of time where you're like, and not just Lewis, but other, again, other folks that have been in F1. Sure. And it's like, you know, I've been, I've been their teammates or I've, you know, I've driven in the same car on the same day, you know, literally same car side by side, same team, whether it be in, in testing, you know, and things like that. It's like, I, you know, I, I know where I stand against, you know, against those people. And again, like back to the, you know, to the Ganassi days of like sharing the car with, you know, with their top drivers on the same day, you know, things like that. Total same, you know, apples to apples. And you can say, okay, like I, you know, like I know, you know, where I, sh- you know, I would, where I should be. And like, it, it is, it's those types of things that make it, um, you know, the, yeah, they, they do make it sort of extra challenge, challenging um, when, you know, if, you know, if you end up in a situation, you know, like I did where it sort of felt like it ended prematurely. Um, right. But, you know, again, like that's, it, it's easy to get, I think that especially those first, and really honestly, like what I think a lot of, like it really doesn't exist anywhere in you know in terms of like the conversation as, as like what does happen whether it's you know as a driver when you 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 turn off the you know turn off the lights whenever that may be for whatever reason it may be um you know and then you move on into your regular career we start to hear a little bit more of like folks in the olympics or maybe the nfl you start to hear a little bit of those stories of like you know former sports you know sports people that that, that then moved on and like just sort of that challenge of, you know, identity, you know, if you grow up in like, that's, you know, for me, since I was age eight, that was my identity. I was Alex Lloyd, the racing driver. And then when that turns off, yeah. Like, you know, you, you try and figure out like, well, what do I do now? Um, and, and yeah, you know, you see these other, these other guys that are out there, you know, doing it in Lewis's case at the highest level, earning God knows how much, you know, how many millions of dollars and, you know, being like the most successful driver. And yeah, there's a little bit where you say, God, like, I know I could have, you know, I, I could be doing that, but through circumstance, through, you know, but, you know, like that's, again, like anything in life, you can live in those what ifs, which is not a great place to be. Or I can look at it and say, you know, like there was a hell of a run. There was a, you know, there was a, you know, experience to form a one car experience, you know, finish fifth in the Daytona 24 hours. Yes, it's not a win, but like, hey, you know, we were, we were up there. We were, we were fighting, you know, been up there and fighting in the, you know, in the 500 race, numerous different races against different teammates and, you know, um, and ultimately made it to the top level, you know. So it's like, I, I can always sort of say that, you know, like, okay, you got to, yes, it, in the top level, it didn't work out quite the way you hoped. But, you know, you were there, you never, you know, there's so many drivers I can think of that 
deserved a crack at the top level that just never got it through financing running out or again, just other circumstances. So um, yeah, I, you know, I, I sort of pretty quickly in those first few years managed to, um, you know, get rid of any of that sort of, yeah, I don't know what the feeling is because it's not a jealousy thing. It's more of just a, you know, just a, you know, being down about luck, you know, circumstance. Right. Um, so, yeah. Like this thing, like this thing that's tangible, but you can't grab it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and yeah. for so long, like, again, at the end of 2007, I felt like I had my hands on it and like, I felt like I'd already grabbed it. You know, it's like, um, yeah, it's like, you know, cashing in a check that you haven't quite got yet. You know, it's like you, you're almost re- mentally in your mind doing that, but it hasn't actually happened. And that, that was, I think a little bit, you know, what, what ended up happening to me is I, you know, I, I took my contract for granted that I'm being told I'm in that car that's going to happen. And like, brilliant. Because when I get in that car, like I've tested that car, like I know I can do the job, like great. Um, the similar thing happened when I, you know, we signed with Newman Haas. I think we did the last race in 2009 with Newman Haas. We had a really good weekend. I think we qualified fifth, finished eighth. Our race car wasn't amazing, but you know, again, we were, you know, Ray Hall was in the same, same, uh, team, and, you know, we sort of outperformed, you know, outperformed the other side of the, the team in qualifying and race. And yeah, like, I, you know, I thought, okay, great. Like Newman Haas, that's a great team. You know, going from Ganassi to Newman Haas, like we're going to have opportunities. And then that fell through last minute too. So for a while, I did think that like I was grasping onto, you know, onto the trophy, so to speak. And then, you know, then it gets sort of ripped out and that's, Again, like looking back, you know, we talked about before, like in hindsight being, you know, being that thing where, you know, there's just so many unpredictable things. And that is the challenge with racing. It's also sort of, you know, the beauty of racing. And that, like, just again, like I think back to my experiences, just so many different things happen that it, it sort of very well prepares you for future life because you deal with all sorts of different adversity. Um, So, yeah, you know, like it's just, that's the way that's the way it all it all rolls and you know what what is meant to be is meant to be i mean you know for for a number of years i i had to sort of rely on you know reminding myself of some of the tragic things that happened and you know with dan's accidents and then justin wilson and you know like again who knows what life or fate is you know it, it sort of drives you like you know m- m- who knows what what you know what would have happened to me if I if I hadn't if you know if I had been you just never know so right I've, I've got to that point where it's like that was what was meant to be you know we we got out of it what we could had an amazing career had a great time doing it and then you know and then move on and figure out the next chapter. Do you keep a lot of your, you know, do you have a lot of your trophies in that to this day, or or is that maybe something you just kind of put away? No, I, I, I do. Um, I don't actually have much on display. Uh, I, I, although I'd like to, but, um, no, I like, I, I, I yeah, I'll, I'll bring out some of the pictures. I usually have a couple of helmets up and about here and there. Just, you know, it's nice to, you know, yeah. to, yeah, again, it's been, you know, it's been more than 10 years now. I'll be going on, going on 11 years. Um, so it's, you know, since the last race. So it's nice to, remind yourself of of like those times because it's very easy to forget like you know in my case i moved you know out of indiana over to california start working in in a real job you know doing you know sat at a desk on a computer 
you know, all the time and, and sort of building a, a, you know, a totally different career. And it's very easy to forget all that, you know, all that side of things. And, um, and yeah, you don't want to forget it. It's, you know, it was an, an amazing period. Um, so, you know, while maybe for a, a little bit of time, it's easier just to sort of tuck it away and not think about it. Like now I'm at that point where like, I, I want to, you know, again, like, like with this conversation, it's, it's really nice just to sort of reminisce about, you know, the old, those old times. And, you know, like I, I miss the racing world at the same point. I remember when I was in it the last few years and I was thinking, God, it would be amazing to like know what my next step in my career is because how scary it was to think at some point racing is going to end and I'm going to have no idea what I'm going to do to feed the family and everything like that. So, you know, you also knew that that transition was going to happen and it was, you know, so it's, lots of weird mixed emotions of, of all of it but um but yeah like I, you know again I, I feel like it, it all happened the way it was supposed to happen yeah i um I, yeah i kind of owned race cars with my brother and stuff like midget sprint car type stuff and uh or not sprint cars but open wheel type stuff and there is this um thing that when you're done it, it really is a strange time uh, even at my level, you know, I, I never had the success that you guys had, but, uh, and you got to remind yourself that you're, you're really 0.01 if everybody who's ever lived, because most people never get the opportunity to even come close to living their dreams. Yeah. And, uh, you have to remind yourself of that. Uh, you know, you know, at least I've, I've had to over the years and, and it is, um, it is a funny thing. You know, you look back on one hand, you're, you're kind of disappointed it's all over. Then you got, then you got to realize that what we kind of lived like Kings and princes, you know, I mean, you had this really amazing life and uh, it it is, I mean, obviously I don't know what it's like to be in your position, but I I have a small idea. Yeah, no, exactly. I tell you what, one of the most interesting things where it really clicked with me as to, you know, that, Oh, like it's not just me sort of anguishing over the, you know, a career ending and moving into real life was they had the the Brickyard Invitational the uh, at, at Indy. It was a, you know, Pro-Am. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The Pro-Am with, you know, vintage muscle cars, bring in 33 former IndyCar drivers, pair them with amateurs, and we go race. You know, race, it was, you know, just go have fun in those cars. I didn't realize you did that. Yeah, I did that for the first three years, maybe. Um, I think I only missed, maybe it was just one year, and then obviously they haven't done it for a couple of years. So, you know, we'd have, uh, it was, I just remember vividly a press conference that we'd have all the time, you know, and, and the, the 33 drivers would come talk and you'd hear it like one by one through, you know, Donald Davidson, you know, his you know, great historian was sort of talking one by one through all the drivers and just getting their sort of feelings and the response from everybody, from Max Pappas, from, um, you know, all these different drivers of various different, um, you know, ages and, and generations and they overwhelming thing was like it's so nice to remind myself of like who i am you know like who, like, who i was uh, or to like show my kids who you know maybe depending on you know on the person like maybe their kids never saw them race never knew who like dad was so there was like this amazing um you know just group of people again all sorts of different decades i wasn't that far removed from racing at the time but there were some of these folks that have been removed for 20 30 years like Dick and Simon every, and people like that. Yeah, exactly. And everybody talking about like, this is an opportunity for me to just sort of relive who I used to be. Um, and that was the first time to me where I was like, oh, wow, like this is this common theme across 
all drivers when they stop and you have like this again like this everything that you've built your whole life around since you were a kid and and then yeah suddenly it's over and you know in 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 you know in later years i've realized that that's sort of across sports in general uh, my girlfriend actually is a two-time olympian and she retired wow. in 2016 after the rio olympics and you know we both talk about exactly the same types of things of like when you know when that ends and there's actually a great documentary it's an hbo one um that the weight of gold and uh, oh, yeah. it kind of helps is it and like i started to see like more of that around and that was like oh wow like yeah that, like that's what it is like that's what all these drivers and all these other sports folk are, are feeling and dealing with um again it wasn't something that was really talked about and i didn't click until as i said that brickyard invitational and i realized that hey max pappas is feeling the same way this this folk this person is that person is and it's like oh wow okay that makes perfect sense. You know, we've had this, you know, your, your personality is sort of, and, and who you are is intrinsically tied to a sport. And then like disconnecting that is the, you know, it is definitely a little bit of a challenge, but um, yeah, it's like a, it's a common thing that every driver has and, and will face, whether they're massively successful or, you know, and have raced at the highest level for decades and decades, or in some cases, maybe they never even made it to the highest level, but like, it's still, it's still that same, same type of thing, you know, different experience, but you know, at, at some point the music stops and, you know, you, you go on with the, you know, the, the non-racing side of life. Maybe, maybe you can be lucky and you can figure out something within racing and sort of keep that passion um, going. In my case, it, it required sort of a full shift away from racing um, to, you know, to, to, to take those next steps. But yeah, it's a, it's a strange, strange business. When you look at the, the number of people that have competed in the 500, I mean, it's like 800 people, like all time. Um, and so you're probably dealing with maybe 200, 300 people that are alive now. So that's a very small number. I mean, just think about all the kids who grow up to say they're going to race in the Indy 500 someday. So it's definitely a very elite, elite group of people. It is. And it, again, it's like, it's one of those things that sometimes you have to just pinch yourself about. And, and I do wish that the Speedway would do a better job at sort of the Indy, you know, Indy 500 alumni, um, <laughs> like, you know, like I know, you, you know, you'll get sort of, you know, an opportunity to go and have a ticket to, to come every year if you want. Um, but there's very little, you know, um, yeah, there's very little that you sort of get as a former alumni. I was like, you said, is what they do is, like the legends. Have you, have you done the legends day stuff at all? Not too much. Um, I think I did a little, again, like now I'm sort of the other side of the country is a little bit more challenging, but there's, right, right. Yeah, there's little bits here and there. Um, they do like the big autograph session the day before the race and they bring back a bunch of the old drivers. Yeah, it's. I think it's um, maybe a little bit selective as to who they, you know, <laughs> who brings back or yeah, I'm not, yeah. not really sure. I know it was not something that I, you know, had sort of really been involved <laughs> in and, you know, maybe... You know, maybe I maybe I would be now. I I think actually they probably have my my wrong um, mailing address on file, but I know they do. So so who knows? Maybe I'm saying all this and they're sending me all this information, you know, all this stuff, and I'm just like, hey. I don't well, you know, know. I, I mean, they had some pretty random drivers. I don't think that. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think you're qualified. To, yeah. You, yeah. Think, you think Doug, Doug's are like. Alex just keeps ignoring us. Why yeah, that's is he actually, it's a good point. Maybe I should reach out and be like, actually. Um, but you know, I do think it's something that's like as a you know. It is something that, like, is yeah, it's a big deal. There's so few people that are alive that have done it. And again, you look at the people in the course of you know history that have raced in it. It's 
it's insane when you think of other sporting events like, you know, the Super Bowl or, again, we just talked about like the Olympics or stuff and things like that. It's it's such a small number of people that it's a really exclusive club. And I think, again, it, it, it regardless of how many times you race it, like there is no question that it like it gets into your veins and it's something that doesn't go away. Like, you, you know, you you feel that sort of exclusivity and you feel different having competed in it than having not competed in regardless of how well you competed i mean like you know i've had a year a year where you know we were at the front challenging and then i had a year the very following year where it was like bumping into the field by last minute as the bell's going off and you know it was a crazy bump day experience didn't make any difference like the the 500 is the 500 and whether you're winning it or coming in last like there is a feeling around it that is I've, you know, I'm sure there are other sports and, and that where people will say, you know, they felt a similar thing, um, but it's hard to, you know, it, it's hard to, to, to think that, you know, of what else, that there aren't many things out there that can. Right, maybe the Super Bowl, that. but yeah, like when it comes to the 500, I really don't but know. Even much. the Super Bowl, like I, I don't know, like if it's, I mean, again, I'm not, I'm not a footballer, but I don't know. I just, I, I have a hard time to feel like the Super Bowl can have that mystique that Indy has. I mean, we like, you know, we all know it. We all see it. Right. You know, driving through those tunnels, there's something <laughs> that gives you those sort of goosebumps. I, again, I think Le Mans is, is probably a similar thing for a lot of sports car sure. drivers that there's, there's maybe something there, but Indy is just, it, it's, it's a, it, it's weird. It's like an environment that is very, very hard to, to put into words. And yeah, so like it, it, it is one of those things that, that, that stays with you regardless of just how and, and not just the drivers but like the people that work in it that are like it, it's across the board it just has something about it that is like indescribable and not not like anything else that i can i can really think of what is that first um 500 race like um, i mean your first year in the race i mean what, what is that like on race morning i mean it a lot i'm sure a lot of butterflies or i mean when does it actually feel like a normal race I mean, you know, every driver's like, oh, you just treat it as a normal race. It's just another day in the office. It isn't. It just, it just isn't. You, you, you try and trick yourself mentally to think that because you have to, because otherwise right. it's just very easy to get overwhelmed by the whole experience. But I mean, yeah, I mean, like the whole, especially my first time, it was three weeks of indie. It wasn't, you know, the, the condensed schedule that it is now. And, you know, you're just nervous and stressed for weeks and weeks on end it feels like and it's like you're just you know you, you're constantly having this sort of weight on you and the day of the race it's like you feel it massively um i mean for me like i get really nervous you know i i, just, I wouldn't sleep the night before i'd have to really fight to get any sort of food inside me um and you again you're just constantly trying to convince yourself it's just another day it's just another race like this is, it, it's just like it was at any other weekend. Um, it, in some ways, again, one of the, the, the thing, the hindsight looking back, I wish I'd spent more time soaking it in and being like, this is freaking cool. Like, I mean, yes, I was thinking it in the back of my mind, but you're always trying to block it off and you're trying to be, you know, play it cool to yourself. Where in reality, all you want to do is be like, like this is just madness like look like look at where i am right now and look at this and like just really soak in and enjoy it enjoy that whole experience um because yeah you, you like you know in, in the moment you tend to think of it as again it's a pressure environment you've got to deliver you've got to perform like you know your next season's maybe hanging on it there's potential prize money at play and you know all these different things that make it a very very stressful experience 
Um, I wish in a way I'd spent more time just pulling back some of those pressures and just enjoying the experience. But it's, yeah, it, I mean, maybe that's part of it as well. Is like just that level of pressure is, is again, just something that is hard to, to explain. And, and again, with unlike a, a lot of racing series with Indy, with the speeds, with the, you know, with knowing what can happen when it goes wrong, e even just a, a small crash at Indy, like it hurts. And you know that anything that happens there is, you know, the risks are high. Um, that brings another level to it. Like, again, just the adrenaline and the race is so long that, you know, that adrenaline is so high for so long. Like I've, I've never felt tiredness like I have after Indy and it's not a physical tiredness. It, it, it's just a absolute mental, just shutdown from three weeks at that point, two weeks, I think in the last two years, but just all those endless weeks of, of preparation and being ready for it. Then this sort of stressful race where you are mentally on it for, you know, three and a half, four hours. And then when it ends, it's just, I, I mean, I remember people saying, Oh, we've got this party or whatever it is. Like after the race, like, I, I could barely move. It's like, I, I can't even think about going out and partying. Like I, I, I want to, but like, I just need to just go chill, relax, like just mental, just shut down. Um, and I, again, I think that's just all this part of India, just like how big it is that, you know, you try and shut it out as much as you can and think of it as another race, but it isn't like, it affects you massively. Um, yeah. It's just, you know, again, one of the reasons why it's so cool. You talked about coming underneath the tunnel uh, off 16th Street, and uh, and every guest we've had on here that we've talked to about, uh, be it Paul Page or Mark Jaynes, who's in you know announcer now, or uh, other drivers, you know, they, we've all talked about driving around those tunnels, and then once you pull up and you see the the uh, museum, it just the world's different whatever happens on the other side of that tunnel is much different than what happens on that side of the tunnel. Yeah. And you can, you can feel it. it is. And we've talked about, like I said, with other guests, there is something in the air inside that place. And I can't, I, I don't know what it is, you know, and, and it, I think it obviously means something different to everybody. Um, You know, for you, it's one thing for me, it's, uh, has a lot to do with my family and, and for Aaron, it's going to be something else. And it, it's just, it's so funny how we, uh, ever since we started doing this show, we, the people we've talked to that we've talked to about that, it, it that is, that's something we, you know, we all share that same feeling for whatever reason. And it doesn't have to be somebody who's competed, you know, or, or is so in touch with it, it could be, just uh, this family that goes and does this one thing one time a year and and it means so much to them as well. It, it, there's something just different about it. And I, I've never been able to explain it. No, I, yeah, and I think that's sort of the magic of it, that it's, it, it is inexplainable. There's no, and you can't, somebody that hasn't experienced it, it's hard for them to, yeah. to understand. You can't understand it. You know, yeah, you hear it from a lot of people. So you think, okay, there must be something true about it. But um yeah, you, you just, it's, I always tell people, like, it's just one of those events you have to go to, but it's, yeah, it just sort of captivates you. And, and like you said, everybody has different reasons, different feelings, different emotions that it draws, but there's just something, like you said, something in the air there that, that tends to, um, yeah, to, to grab people. And 
yeah, it doesn't it doesn't matter who you are. It's just, it's a very very strange place. And I, like and I and I you know and I you know, not living in Indiana now, having lived there for for ten years, like I, I miss that. I miss not being you know being near the track and you know sort of having that. So, um, but it's still there. You know, you go back years later, it's that same feeling as you grow and go under the tunnel. It's a yeah, it's a crazy place. As somebody who competed in the full series as as a driver and. And I've often wondered this, and I, I don't think I've ever asked this of anybody. Do you think almost the side, the, how big that one race is maybe hurts the rest of the series a little bit? Because the rest of the series cannot match that one day. And I know that there's outliers, right? Long Beach is its own thing. I think Road America is really kind of getting its feet under it. And Mid-Ohio seems to have, really have its feet under it. Uh, but... I've often kind of wondered, I mean, we could even go back to your last race, which was Vegas. In a way, they were trying to create an event to kind of match the 500 for the end of the year. Mm. And uh, I, I just think that that one event's so big, it just kind of dwarfs the rest of the series. No, I think that's fair. There's definitely a perception, I think, in Europe of – I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's still the case, but I think at the time there was sort of a perception that, you know, the Indy 500 is what you want and the rest of it. I mean, like we saw it with Alonso coming over and, you know, like he wanted the Indy 500 for obvious reasons. And, you know, the allure of, at least at that point in his career of, of going sort of full time was, was not really something that, that, you know, had that same sort of gravitational pull, I think it is possible that like to have the Indy 500 as big and as sort of magical it is, it takes away from the other races, you know, if it wasn't as big and the whole, like, you know, it, it's difficult. Like, what do you, what do you prefer? I mean, if you ask a driver, any driver is going to say, I want to win the 500. And if I win the championship, that's great. But like the 500 is, is what I want. So it, yeah, it, it is a very, it's strange how one race in a series where it's the same cars for the most part, same drivers racing week in, week out, and you can just go to one venue and it have this whole different meaning. Again, like, you know, we talked about this earlier with Monaco and Formula One, like, it's just not the same thing. Like, yes, it's a, it's a magical, cool venue going racing around Monaco, but it's not the same. It's still another race. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know, you know, for better or for worse, but I think it does have have a bit of an impact um and you know yeah it, it becomes a focus i mean for you know from a driver it's nice because you you know you can have a focus on a series but then you know again one like in 2011 for me uh or 2010 like one good year in indy made up for like the whole you know run up to that race in the season had been terrible like nothing was going to plan everything was sort of bad and then you have a great indie, and it was like, whatever happens the rest of the season, I don't care. This season's a success. It, it, so it's a, it's a weird. It, it is weird. It, it's very different to you know, again, any any other form of, of racing, really. But, um, I, I yeah, it definitely has an impact on I think the rest of the series, and and maybe it it doesn't have that same. I don't know if like people who watch the 500 for whatever reason, it doesn't necessarily mean that you get them hooked in the 500 and they're going to be hooked in IndyCar full time. Right. It could be that, you know, uh, you know, you, you're, you're hooked. Okay. It's like a bit like me with the, with the Olympics. Like I will watch a certain sport like swimming and I will be super into it in the Olympics and I'll know everybody and I'll watch it, but I'm not going to watch, you know, the rest of the swimming competitions, right. even if it's the same people. 
And I think it has a similar thing where it is so oh, big, but it doesn't necessarily... I mean, it obviously has some Halo effects on the rest of the series, obviously, but um, but it's its own beast. Aaron, would you say, you know, we had Mario uh, on the show uh, not too long ago, actually. And, you know, Aaron, we, we talked to him, but we really didn't ask him about that. But, I mean, it's amazing that he's, for everything he's done, and he's done almost a, almost all of it, he's still known for winning the Indy 500. I mean, that's how he's introduced. I and mean, he's a 41 champ, Daytona 500 champ. Arguably, maybe the greatest race car driver ever. He's still most driving at 200 mile an hour, and he's in his 80s, which is just insane. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And uh, it, and it, it is it is amazing how that one event has has that appeal. And 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 I, I think it's kept him young. I mean, I think you know he's become the biggest ambassador for IndyCar racing. And yeah. I really think that those days and those cars just have kept him a young man. And in spirit, you know. Yeah. No, I, I think you're right. And unlike to your point before about the Vegas race, like trying to hype that up, there's just, you know, they tried a lot, and it was a cool weekend. I mean, obviously, with the exception of, of obviously everything that happened right, during right. the race, but like the build up to it was, you know, was great to be a part of. But it, it just, it's not the same thing. Like it just, yeah. There's it, it just, it, and it could never be. You know, I don't, I don't think any race you could build up. It's the history. It's everything. You can't start up a new, you know, nobody could. Formula One couldn't. Any other series couldn't. It's just, yeah, it, it's, and I, and I'm sure with people like Mario that, you know, have raced it all those times, have done everything. It, it's, I, I'm, yeah, I, I'm sure. I mean, I don't know, but I, I would imagine it is probably the number one thing on his list as well of everything that he's oh. done is like, oh, yeah. 500. Yeah, I have to agree with that. Do you, um, and we've mentioned Vegas a few times, and obviously anybody who who knows much about the sport knows what happened in Vegas, and, and very very sad day. And uh, but that you've also talked about that was your last race. Um, that was such a weird event in time because so many things, the fallout from that one event were so was so massive. I mean, Randy. And I don't know what your opinion. Randy kind of was the fall guy in, in a lot of ways in that, I feel like. Um, and, you know, and I think you can really track a lot of the sports momentum today back to when Randy kind of assumed that position. Yeah. And um, and then, like, you know, that was like your last race. And that was the last time Danica ran an Indy. Or, well, when the last time she ran IndyCar. But that's last race she ran, I believe, before she went to stock cars and uh, of course, uh, Dan passed, and and uh, I don't know, kind of take us not so much through the tragedy of the event, but kind of just through that period where, like, you you know, you were involved in that crash too, right? Yeah, yeah, I was. And um, kind of what your fallout was from that race, because as we established, you know, it was your last IndyCar race. Kind of, yeah, what led to that being your last race? Well, I, I think number one, I knew that um, I needed to find some form of, of funding. I had a, a couple of different, a couple of options of teams that were like, yes, like Sam Schmidt was a was one that had a, a really good deal for me on the table if I could find just a little bit of funding, and then they had other sponsors that would fund the rest. 
And, you know, I worked hard over the end of the winter. And I thought I had a, a sponsor lined up. It fell through last minute. And then that was sort of like, okay, at this point, especially with me, like I, I had kids, I had like, I had to put food on the table. I couldn't just say, okay, I'm just going to go bunk up and li live on the couch of a mechanic or whatever. And we'll, you know, I'll, I'll wait it out and see if I can get something back in. I, I had to make a bit of a switch. So the, the stopping wasn't because of, you know, of that race, but that race, right did have a, a big impact. I mean, I remember going away from that thinking, you know, again, that year I was in not a competitive car um, and a very small team. And I remember thinking to myself, like, unless I can do it properly, unless I can come in, you know, I think I, I don't know, I was, I was midfield in that race at the time and qualified midfield. And I just remember thinking like, it's not worth it to me to risk that much and we all knew going into that race that it was a huge huge risk i mean we'd all sp drivers had spoken about it expressed concern felt like it was sort of an entertainment play and at the sort of expense of of our safety um and i just remember yeah coming out of it saying i'm going to do it properly or i'm not going to do it at all um that's not to say if i'd have had an offer from a small team or whatever that actually i would have just said you know what actually i want to be in it but I was trying to convince myself that, you know, you're going about this the right way. There's a few teams that you will look to talk to if this sponsorship doesn't work out and you don't get that, move on, go, go do something else. Like maybe that would be sport. Like who knows what that would be, but go do something else. Um, and yeah, it was just, it, you know, I think it was definitely sort of a life changing weekend, I think for probably everybody involved. And there's a sort of bond, I think, between drivers that experienced that weekend and experienced the sort of that moment between, you know, the accident and leaving the racetrack um, of just how those un um, events unfolded, like when we found out what we did, because the race at that point was still technically on, like, how do we finish this weekend? What do we do? You know, Mario giving his opinions of, you know, Hey, if we don't, if we don't finish a race, there may not be an IndyCar next year. This could, this could topple the series, you know, talking about staging a race of like, well, we'll, we'll, we'll go and drive, but we won't actually be racing each other even though people were emotional and then, I mean, it really actually on all credits, Randy, you know, he came up and was like, no, we have a parade and we, we call this, but it was, you know, like all of those just sort of emotions that were going on and just in a room between, you know, however many of those there were, you know, uh, was it 33 drivers that race? Um, something yeah, like, I think it was 33 like and, you know, just a few, a handful of officials and, you know, it was, yeah, it was just one of those situations that, um, like, I've never experienced anything like it before or after. Um, and, yeah, it, it was a just a complete monumental shift in, like, again, like you talk about learning things about yourself as a person and just experiencing all sorts of different emotions and, you know, obviously knowing Dan well and knowing Dan's family and all those things. Like, it was just a, it was a horrible, horrible um, sort of period. But sort of again eye-opening to me of i need to do this right like the situation that i'm in of you know racing a car that at this point isn't competitive is is not that entertaining to me you know like i i, I want to be winning races i don't want to be making up the numbers and vegas was a clear indication of like like what's the point in in coming here to finish midfield like either i get there where i can go and win or i could i can run up front and i can can sort of compete to the to the level that I, I feel like I'm capable of or call it quits and go find something else to do because you know 
risking everything just to be a part of the show. Like the Indy 500, we talked about that. It, it's different. Like you just want to be a part. Like there is an element of just being a part of the show means something. Outside of that, in any other race, being a part of the show didn't mean anything. Um, it, you know, being a part of the show, like you wanted to just, you wanted, you were there to win. Indy was that only exception where, again, the magic of Indy, whatever it is, being part of it meant something. So, yeah, I was just very clear afterwards that I need to find an opportunity to be competitive or, you know, or maybe this isn't, you know, maybe it's time to, to look elsewhere. As I said, I didn't have a, you know, any sort of real options that came about after that. And, you know, if there was from a smaller team, you know, being honest, I probably would have, I probably would have revoked my, my thoughts, but, and, and gone and done it just because, Hey, it's a race car. And like, you know, but, um, but yeah, it was, it was definitely a big transition point for me. And, and I wish it wasn't my last race. Like I don't, you know, I, I wish it wasn't in those circumstances, but as I said, there's just, you know, a lot of things that happened that weekend, you know, the year or two later with Justin and, you know, you just, you, you never know what was going to happen. So for me, you know, it was just, it didn't feel like a, you know, um, I, you know, that sort of feeling of I would do anything to, for that not to be my last race. The fact that it was, it was just, is, is, is fine with me. It was just a really difficult weekend and a bonding weekend with just the people that were sort of involved that like, I know there are only, you know, 32 other people like in the world that experienced what those of us on track experienced that day. And it's a, you know, it's an experience that you, yeah, it is, you know, is, is very, very unique. And I think like tragic events in general, you know, when you have a group of people that are involved in some very tragic event, like it does form some sort of bond and some oh, sort absolutely. of thing that other people can't understand. So, or, or you know, just, yeah, unless you were in it, you can't really explain that. So yeah, that was, it was one of those weekends. And it's weird because I always hear like, you know, older people talk about, you know, people like Scott say, sorry, Scott, but people like, you know, talk about like big events in history, like landing on the moon or whatever. They would say like, I remember exactly where I was when I heard that for me, the one event um, is, you know, is, is that race. Like I remember exactly where I was when that happened because um, Dan was, you know, kind of like a role model for me. He was someone I always, you know, really kind of looked up to and I was a huge fan. And I just remember, you know, it really devastated me. And I might tell exactly where I was and, I was in Chicago. I remember the next day, actually, ironically, um, we were in like Nordstrom's or something and have a TV on. It was like CNN and you were on there. I think it was CNN. But they uh, were interviewing I did you. some stuff with CNN. Yeah. Yeah. I think. Um, yeah, yeah. It was. And again, it's like, cause I think we were, I don't know why we were locked in Vegas for so long, but it, it felt like we were in Vegas for at least a couple of days or so after the race. I don't remember why, like why we couldn't have just gone home. Like that would have seemed like the logical thing to do, but I didn't realize I just, I just remember being in Vegas in, in the hotel room and just phone ringing off the hook, emails everywhere, you know, just like, because it just blew up to, you know, not just US media, but, you know, like, especially in like the UK global, but in the UK was, was huge too. Um, just, you know, given obviously Dan's nationality and it was, you know, you were just being bombarded with media to a level that, you know, never, never experienced before. And then we had this sort of moral battle of, I remember talking to other drivers, especially uh, Tony Kanaan and being like, hey, you know, we're all getting all these, these media requests, but what we're seeing here is the media is, is running with stories that aren't, aren't fair, they aren't true, that they're talking about, you know, did 
desperation lead to this because of the the way they did it, the, you know, starting at the back and stuff. And there was sort of a um, a decision of like, hey, those of us that can, those of us that feel like we are capable of, of going and talking about this, we need to try and change the narrative so that it's not about this, you know, like say it for what it is, that this was just a, you know, the perfect storm of like just pure, un, like unlucky and talk about like Dan as the person that like he was and the family man that he is and like tell the real story and not let some of the, you know, some of the tabloids start going out of control with this. So yeah, CNN was one of them. And there was, there was a few others too, where, you know, it became this sort of media circus, but of something that it felt like, you know, we need to do. But again, it was just like this moral battle. I remember there was a lot of controversy within the drivers of one driver that went on TV with their, you know, with their sponsor shirt on. And it was like, well, wait a minute, like that's, and that driver didn't even think about it at the time. It was like, it just didn't even cross, you know, cross the mind. You're so used to doing it, but there was all this sort of moral battle of like, you know, we don't want to say anything. We don't want to be seen as trying to profit from media because that was wrong. But at the same point, we like, we want to, we need Dan's story to be told and not let people, you know, come up with these wild accusations as to what happened during the weekend. So it was just this, this like awful, awful time. And like you said, I think everybody, you know, in, in the racing world would know where they were at that moment. And it was just like that. Again, another one of those sort of experience, like a life-changing experience in a, you know, in a, you know, in, in, you know, unlike indie, in that positive way, in just a negative way. Um, and just a, a sort of, I guess, a learning way, but yeah, just a, just like, again, an experience that I've never experienced and I hope to never experience anything, anything like it again. Yeah, I was at uh, Disney, and uh, Robin and I were at Disney. Disneyland or Disney World? Disney World. And I was coming back to the hotel, and I missed the start of the race. She called me. She said, oh, my God, you're not going to believe what you're going to see. And uh, I and I was parking the car, and I, I went upstairs, and I watched those replays, and I was just stunned at what I'd seen. Um, and... Uh, it was, it, you know, I've been around a lot of auto racing in my life, and it was like nothing I'd ever seen in my life. And, um, yeah, I'll, I'll never forget that day. It was just, and I, and like I was texting back and forth with some people, and I said, "Man, this this don't look good. This looks really, really bad." Uh, you know, for Dan, and um, and obviously, unfortunately, that was true. And, uh, yeah, and it was terrible. And, I, and, and another day kind of goes along with that, but it had a different result. At least for me is when Dixon crashed at the speedway a few years ago. And yeah, and uh, that happened right in front of me. I, I like sitting in those stands right there on the inside because it's easy in, easy out. And, and uh, he caught that, you know, the catch fence, what was a few hundred feet from me. And I mean, I felt like I was watching that thing in slow motion. And it was just, duh. I mean, yeah. just a, a grinding grinding crash yeah and uh, i remember that i remember that one well that was insane that that you know that he was was okay like i yeah again you just have a sinking feeling sitting there watching in person no way i thought the outcome was going to be what it was just you know and that's thankfully it was though but you know we've kind of we've kind of talked about we've kind of alluded to it a little bit and 
and you know you're you're a normal working joe these days and living uh as fairly normal as life as any of us can what what do you do these days well so i made it look so right now it seems like a very big transition like i'm i sort of uh lead a content brand and seo sort of part of uh an organization that um is basically a technology real estate company um company called knock that um is trying to revolutionize the the way and make buying a home simpler it, it's like basically doing marketing and you know that seems very you know very dis you know different from uh obviously what i was doing there was a progression to that so you know like after after racing i actually started writing and doing some media stuff about cars and i was sort of doing test drives of various different um really supercars and things like that you know and go Get try that it. um sprint car me and scott were just talking about that sprint yeah. car video at um ventura speedway ventura, yeah so i did i did stuff like that and was just really just trying to leverage the you know the sort of the racing side of things and my driving to go drive some cool things and make cool videos and write articles and i did that for a number of years um and that sort of led me I, I basically you know was realizing that like as fun as that was and that was a great way to tr transition out of racing because you know having a career as a race car driver like it is the most fun you can have like you we are spoiling ourselves because you know we're just driving fast cars and then you come home and yeah you're talking to your engineers and what have you but you know you don't really have a whole lot to do other than train some sponsor engagements maybe and then you go into your next race and it's it, you know it's a great existence um so going into you know a world where oh i'm just driving fast you know fast cars and you know doing drifts and putting it on camera like that was great but i you know pretty quickly realized that just from a career perspective it's it's fun but there's a little bit of a glass ceiling there and i you know like i i wanted to sort of you know move beyond that which meant going into sort of corporate um like you know basically taking my driving and car and writing media experience and bringing that into a company which that company was a company that used to buy and like that would basically try and revolutionize buying and selling actually carvana's equivalent uh it was carvana's main rival at the time so i could jump into that and they'd be like oh cool we've got like the race car driver on staff that's like that's cool we'll have some great content from him and things like that but that that uh entrance into sort of the the corporate America world and technology and in the Bay area here, that then led me to, you know, to sort of step then outside of, you know, same job, but outside of cars. And I sort of intentionally went away from just being the car guy because I was very pigeonholed into a, a specific role. And I wanted to try and broaden that to where, you know, I could work for any company and like, no matter what happens in life, if, you know, COVID happens, which we didn't know about, and they they lay off people that like I, you know, I, I have places to go versus just being, you know, like a a cargo, a very specific role. So it was sort of by design, but um, you know, but it's it's a far cry from what I used to do, and and like I said, very, um, you know, as somebody that's used to the adrenaline rush and you know and and that side of things, like yeah, it's 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 been a bit of an adjustment. As I said, it's been a long time now, so like I'm pretty you know, pretty well adjusted to it. But um, you know, that's that's the thing. Like yeah, you you know, you come off a career racing, you know, at the highest level and competing and doing this, and then you have this what now? Um, and in my case, yeah, like you know, you could you know, maybe carry on doing something in racing to a degree. But in my case, I'm like, I want to start and try and build a successful career outside of racing that has the longevity that I can, 
you know, um, do what I want to do from, you know, for, you know, for something, just a whole new career. So yeah, it was basically rip up the playbook, start from scratch, leverage what I could from racing and, you know, try and bring something to help me sort of, you know, get where I want to be a little bit quicker. But, um, but yeah, it was, it's a, a whole 180 degree switch from anything that I'd done, <laughs> done growing up. And I never, I didn't, well, I say I never would have expected it. When I was racing the last couple of years, I actually was like wanting it in a way because I was a little bit disillusioned with how things had been going and like feeling like I wasn't in the car that I could compete in. And I remember thinking to, and, and, you know, to be candid, like not really earning any money at that point, like, you know, barely enough money to live, just like, you know, money here and there, just, you know, the life of a race car driver without sponsors that isn't in a big team, you know, you just, you know, you're just scrounging for what you can. And I remember thinking of the day, like, God, if I could be in like a well-paid job, you know, like health insurance, all these sort of benefits and stuff like that, like, that sounds amazing. Cause like, I'm terrified about what happens when I don't have a racing career and I have, you know, and I got to try and figure life out. So, you know, now I'm in that, I'm like, God, I wish, you know, like I, I miss being back in the race car, but you know, it's, the grass is always greener to a degree. And like I said, like inevitably as a sports, a sports person, there's going to be a finite time where career ends, whether that's age 20, 25, 30, 40, like whatever age it is, unless you're very, very lucky and you, you know, you've made a ton of money over the years in your, in your sport and you can just turn off and go retire on a beach for most people. Yeah. You've got to go figure out what's next. And that's, if anything, that's the, in fact it is without question, the most challenging part of all of us. If you're racing kind of, career or something, that, I'm sorry, like, you're, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. No, sorry I was going to say like, are your coworkers like they ever, I mean, are, I'm guessing they're aware of like your racing career. Um, but I mean, we've talked to guys where they're, I mean, their families don't know much about the racing career. Like they've kind of like just kind of put that behind them. So would you say like your coworkers and stuff are kind of aware of your racing career and, you know, maybe talk about it or. To a degree. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I have, there's, there's a few people that, you know, I've actually, there's a guy at my old job that lives in right by the speedway. Um, he joined as like a director of engineering or something. And, you know, he was like, oh, I'm like, a, like I go to the 500 every year. Like I, you know, as soon as I saw your name, like, oh, I, like I, I knew exactly you know, when I pieced it together. I was like, oh, like, you know, I know. What you, so like there are people like that. And like, you know, I, I'm, I'm not one of those people that tends to talk about it that much. I'll do it in the whole like, you know, three truths and a lie thing that you might do when you get into, you know, you do an, an introduction. Right. Um, and it's always, you know, it's always a or like a fun fact, you know, be like, yeah, I, I'll throw fun it fact. out. It's like, I don't have any other fun facts really. So like, that's a cool one. Like the Indy 500 is cool. So I'll always throw that out there. So usually people know. People but, probably think that's a lie, right? I mean, do people yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Like, nah, that's not right. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I think most people know. And it's really de dependent on, you know, are, are they like this? The, and that's the crazy thing. There's a lot of people that know nothing about racing. And that's what you, you sort of learn in after being out of the racing bubble. Because when I was in that racing bubble, it just felt like everybody knows everything. And like it's everybody is like fascinated by this sport. Not everybody, but you know what I mean? Like you're in this bubble. When you step out of that bubble, you realize that it is still a relatively, you know, small sport by, I mean, they're obviously way, way smaller sports, but it, you know, it, it just doesn't have that sort of you know, notoriety. So like people know of the 500, but there are actually very few people that can name, 
drivers in it and stuff, which is sort of, you know, sort of sad to to see as you sort of step out of that bu- bubble and into a world where, you know, um, you don't have that. But there, there are always a few people that that do know and appreciate it. And it's nice to have those sort of conversations. Um and yeah, like for me, like I said, I'm not, I'm not one that's running around with it on a t-shirt, you know, telling everybody that I meet, you know, I'm just doing my thing. But if it, if it, if it comes up, I'll, you know, I'll talk about it. Yeah. Well, I'll go in your, you were talking about, uh, it made me think of two things. Uh, one that is kind of the dark secret about, I don't know, uh, you'd say all of professional racing with the a few exceptions, not as much money there as people think there is, uh, to be a driver. Um, and I think we all know drivers who are fairly well, fairly well known who aren't making any money. Yep. You know, like Connor Daly would be a great example of that. Yeah. Well, I wasn't going to say that, but yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I like an example was that Vegas race. So before the race, um, you know, like I, I was, you know, trying like almost feeling lucky that I had a salary at Dale coin because again, like I had no, no funding, no, nothing. He was funding that drive all himself, you know? So it was like, you get just a little bit there and, you know, hope that, you know, you, you kind of, again, just hoping that you find that golden ticket that, that gets you, um, that, that, big contract, but you know, at the Vegas race, I like, I remember going there, uh, you know, IndyCar driver finished fourth in the Indy 500 the year before, um, you know, had won the rookie of the year the year before. And I, you know, went to, you know, Vegas hotel, I think I was staying in the Bellagio, um, like with anything you put down your card, um, to, you know, to, for incidentals in Vegas, they take a much larger cut because it's Vegas and you could run up a pretty big bill pretty quickly. And I remember it like basically wiping out my account and being there like, I don't have enough money to go even get food. Like literally walking around Vegas, like, can I find a cheap sandwich shop? Because, you know, going to a, you know, a restaurant or a meal or something is, is like, I don't have that right now. I mean, I literally had zero, zero dollars in the account. And that was, you know, the, you know, Vegas IndyCar weekend. And you, you know, you're walking around in that, we said they made a big deal of that race like some sort of celebrity, like in these fancy hotels and all of this. And the reality is, and again, like I, I knew I was one of many drivers that were in that similar sort of situation um, where, yeah, you, you know, you, you either have money through family or whatever, or you have a sponsor that, and you're taking a cut off the top of that sponsorship, which is great. Or you are, you know, being paid a handsome sum of money as one of the top drivers or if you don't have funding and you're doing a Connor Daly type of thing, or you know, and, and many others like Vitor Mira was doing it, you know, was doing it at the time. Darren Manning did it, you know, like there was a number of of us around that sort of time that were you know getting opportunities but didn't have funding to bring to the table. Yeah, you're you're, you're living on basically nothing, and you, you used to. So I guess in in like Darren Manning's earlier days, like in in his era you could because they had the prize money and you could take a cut. You could have no salary. You could get a cut of prize money. So you get 30% of the prize money and you know, you make a handsome sum of money over the course of the year, even if you don't do that well, but when they changed that prize money, so it became team money. So it was like, basically the teams then decided that, okay, this is effectively just funding for us. Like this isn't prize money anymore. It's just a lump sum that we will take as part of our, to lower the cost of our running but it meant that there was no race by race prize money other than maybe the Indy 500, even that prize money was lumped into what the team money. So you had no way of earning prize money. So you suddenly went from, again, like 
the era of when like Darren Manning and Vitor and stuff were in those early, you know, those earlier days when there was the prize money and they could still, you know, make a, a decent living out of that to then this sudden cutoff where you, the income stream for drivers just went. Uh, and again, like again, it was, it was another reason why we had a lot of conversations after Dan's accident in, in Vegas, because a lot of the drivers didn't have insurance then and they couldn't afford insurance. And, you know, and like there was a, like, you know, they, there was just, a, it's very unknown. And a lot of people I spoke to afterwards were just, you know, I didn't really talk about it at the time, obviously, because like, you know, you're in this, in this racing bubble, but, but now, yeah, it's a lot of people just didn't, don't realize that you know, how challenging it can be. And again, like that's one of the reasons why I was pretty disillusioned the last couple of years, because, sure. you know, I was you know in a nice contract at Ganassi with, you know, with this, this deal that then just sort of all, all fell away. And, you know, you're like, God, like, how am I, you know, I, I'm risking my life. I'm I, at that weekend. I didn't even have enough money to buy a sandwich and I've got to figure out like what's next in my career when, when racing ends. And it was definitely feeling like I'm getting to a point where, something has to happen or this is going to be the end of my career you know i have no qualifications to back up it's not like i've been working in another in another field like how the hell am i going to build a a sustainable lifestyle out of you know starting from scratch at you know mid mid late 20s so really yeah it, it's a really scary proposition and i'm sure like i don't know any the situations of today's drivers but i'm sure there's there's a number of drivers that are in that similar situation and find you know and fighting that same battle internally as to like what next and you know how do i survive when that you know that racing career comes to an end and you know is the racing career without sponsor viable as a as a career it's a um yeah it, it, it's there's a lot of nuances that i think a lot of people don't you know don't realize in a sport as big as in you know as big as indycar and the indy 500 you know you just assume the outside world assumes very different things to what can often be the reality when you um yeah and it's not even like you can go get a a job monday through thursday and then go play on the weekends you know he you know racing's a full at that level is absolutely 24 7 a full-time job and yeah i yeah no, well, it's tough, but, well, I, but it's like uh, you know, and, and again, I've noticed the difference here between you know, my again, my girlfriend who's uh, you know an Olympian in a you know in a synchronized swimming, so a, a much smaller sport. There isn't big money in that, especially in like the US. You know, it's not like the top people there are you know are, are earning a, a ton of money. So you know, you you live in this world where you know your objective is to get to the Olympics and to. Um, you know, it's not going to be a massive career, you know, financial for you doing it just for the love of the sport. And then you, you know, you move into whatever it is that you, you're going to do next, you know, with racing, because there is a lot of media attention around it and you're sort of hyped up, you're around celebrities, you're racing the Indy 500, you're on TV. Um, I think it's actually, there's an ego that can come with it in terms of, you know, you almost feel more important maybe than you actually are. And certainly by, in those cases that like the, the finances surrounding it can, you know, it, it, so it's funny. So you, you have this sort of feeling of, well, I, I don't want to go and like, you know, maybe I could go find some part-time job or do this or do that. But like, I'm an IndyCar driver. Like I shouldn't have to, you know what I mean? It's like you, right. it's, it's really, again, tricks you in the mind because of all the, you know, the applause and the, the, the stuff that's going on around you um and and that again is the case for for many different sports but i'm sure it's the case for like nfl and stuff like that you know there are as i said like you know i have that sort of personal you know insight into smaller sports 
where you know those people don't have that because they're not sort of in that public eye the same way as you know we would be from a, a racing standpoint so there was definitely a part with me where it's like you had to just put your ego in check and be like you know what you just got to do like it like all of us have to do nowadays it's just you, just, you know you just got to go get a job and make some money uh, and do whatever you got to do um but in that moment of of like being an indycar driver it's very easy to feel like you know, like I don't have those other options of, of maybe doing a little bit on the side here because like I'm an IndyCar driver and I, you know, it's, it's weird. Again, it's a bit of an, an ego, um, like knock or just something that you have to learn to put in check at a certain point, because, you know, that's, that's not how the world works. And again, it goes back to that sort of defining yourself after racing, you define yourself as an IndyCar driver versus a person. And, you know, you, you start to figure out that that's not actually the case. So yeah, it's as I said, this is just a very complicated thing that in the moment you don't really even think about or digest. And now a decade later, all these all these little things that you you know you come to you come to learn. Yeah, it's funny. Um and I believe this is who the story I, I'd read about uh back in the day, like the NASCAR guys and that. Um like they were talking about Harry Gant. And I don't know if you know who Harry Gant was, but he was very popular NASCAR driver in the seventies, eighties and uh, very good. He had school sponsorship and, and uh, but he, he had been a working man his whole life. Like a lot of those guys were and like, he would go, he would race on Sunday and he'd get home and he'd go put roofs on for a few days of the week, you know, and that's what he yeah. did. That's what his business. And, you know, and there was other guys that had lumber companies, you know, it, it, it was such a different mindset for those guys, and of course, then the money got so good in the 90s and 2000s. Of course, people didn't do that in NASCAR, but I always kind of think about that uh, now. But we were talking a while ago about uh, kind of the end of the career, and, and I, it, it always kind of re reminds me, of, have you ever seen the movie Goodfellas? Oh, yeah. yeah. Or, so, you know, at the end, he's in witness protection, and he goes out, and he picks up the paper, and he's just talking about living this normal life, and... Uh, I, I can't, it's kind of, a, you kind of equate it the same way, right? It's like, okay, now, you know, he's out living this normal life and he's just doing what everybody else does. And, and, uh, you know, it's not near as exciting to him and not near as fun for him. And I, I kind of think that for a race car driver, especially someone that had success like yourself, that I'd almost have to kind of feel a little bit of the same way. It's like, well, I guess I'll get the paper now. I don't drive race cars anymore, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it is hundred percent. I mean, yeah. Getting used to like, for me, it was like, what do I channel that? I, I didn't realize how much I missed the competitive and adrenaline out of it. Um, and it's, but it's like, how do you like in normal life, how do you channel that? You know, when you're used to driving 240 mile an hour, you know, around, you know, the Indianapolis motor speedway, like, uh, you know, a split second turning in too late is disaster. You know, like, all these different like feelings that you have, like, how do you get that in the normal world? And like, I mean, the answer is like, like you don't. <laughs> and, and, right. like, and, I'm, and I'm still trying to trying to like figure out like, what's that? What's that thing? I mean, the, the, the closest I had, which is totally different, but I found that I started doing some cycling and like bike racing and things like that. And that gave me a lot of, I realized that that competitive element of like, just compete, even if it's just competing against myself, like just trying to get better, even if it was like, you know, like going up a climb one day on a bike and being able to look at my time and be a little bit faster and then going into races and competing against others. And, you know, th those, uh, yes, you're not going that fast, but, you know, when you fall off a bike 
at 30 mile an hour and you get mangled up, you know, in wearing nothing but lycra, like that, you know, <laughs> there's, there's a risk to that. So uh, it is trying to find those, those things that, um, that can replace it. But, you know, the honest truth is that there isn't, unless you go back into that, that world, there's nothing that can really replace that. Adrenaline. And especially from like the level of, of IndyCar, like I, I drove, you know, I drove like the Thunder, you know, Thunder Hill 25 hours or, or like some other smaller, um, you know, like slower cars, things like that. Even that, you just don't get that rush that you do, like driving a sports car, for instance, than an Indy car. Like that level of speed and adrenaline is like an oval racing. Like it's a whole other level. So even like dropping down into a sports car, like you're still missing some of that rush. You go back to normal life and it's like you have none of that. Like like what do you do to, to sort of fill that um, that void, that sort of gap that you, you know, that as a person – you you sort of want like I, I didn't really know I needed it that much at the time. It's just like racing was just my career, what I did. And then you you know you realize that yeah, I'm maybe not an adrenaline junkie, but like you're used to operating with that sort of um, yeah, with you know with just that sort of excitement. So yeah, it, you know then you got to try and figure out you know where else do you, where else do you get that from? Is it's hard have to you ever, indie. Have you ever talked to you know? You ever thought about being a driver coach? You know kind of a deal like that or have you done that i did that i did that for the first year after um after uh, my my indie car so like 2012 i did that i did a, a fair bit of coaching with like pippa man i was coaching at sam schmidt so when connor and joseph newgarden were there like i was coaching for the team um i think i, I was victor carbone was one of the teammates of them so i was like officially with him uh, also, Gustavo Yakiman, I coached him, I think it was that maybe 2012. So I did a couple of years of coaching. And, and for me, it just, it wasn't my thing. Like, in all in all honesty, I, I sort of left the racetrack after racing by design. So I did some media stuff too. I remember you know, Fox News, I think it was, um, at the track. So not not the, obviously, any of the commentating during the race, but like the pre-build-up stuff on the local Indiana News. I did some of that. And I, I think what I realized is just being around the racetrack and not driving was so difficult. You know, it was, um, you know, it's it's like breaking up with a longtime girlfriend or something and then being forced <laughs> to like work next door on the same, you know, the same, like it, it's really difficult just to be around it and not be the driver. And, and I, you know, like I felt like I was good at actually another way. I, I coached John Lacey in his uh, Indy 500 oh. run. Um so like I, I was doing this and I was pretty, I felt like I was, you know, good at it and had some, some good insight, but I just didn't like it. I just didn't, I, I just hated not being the driver and sort of being on that other side. It just made me want to be back in the car. So for me, it was like, I, I almost knew that's really why I think I left the sort of, you know, made that transition I did from like the auto journalism and, and off to, to where I am now is because I just didn't want to be around. Like I needed to sort of disconnect and again, like find out who you are outside of racing. So um, the coaching was fun. And I, I again, I, I thought that I, you know, had stuff to bring there, but it was also, you know, mildly agonizing of just, you know, right. being there at the track, being there at the 500, but being in the spotter stand with videos and, you know, trying to coach just, you know, I think for some drivers, you know, former drivers, like that works. Like they just, you know, like being a part of it, it gives them that 
connection to the sport that, you know, that helps them with me, it was like an all or nothing type of thing. Like I want to be driving. And if I'm not driving, I have to be doing something else because otherwise I'm just going to be spending my whole time, like, you know, just wishing that the phone would ring and I could find some sort of seat here or there, or, you know, something would happen. And, you know, that's also, again, my, my position was slightly different that I had a, you know, again, family, I, I needed to provide, I needed to put food on the table quickly. So I, I had to make those decisions based on sort of, you know, future career, but also just for my own, my own sanity of, of being around <laughs> a racetrack and not being, not being the driver. Um, for me, it was better just to sort of walk away, disconnect, and then look back on it on years like now and think about how cool it is. And I, you know, I'd love to go back to the 500 this year and other races and just, you know, see some, some see some old friends and, and be around the paddock and not, not have that burning desire to still be in it. And I think that was partly just because, again, my, my career didn't finish when I wanted it to finish. Like I, it wasn't my decision to, to retire. That was just the way the, the cards fell. Right. No, it, it, I fully understand that. <laughs> I do. Well, Aaron, do you have anything else for this gentleman? Um, just one one last thing I was thinking about. So as Scott was saying, a, a good friend of the show, and Scott's actually kind of like his uncle, Jagger Jones, who's driving in the um, USF 2000 um, this season. And he's, he's had a lot of success in the, in the, you know, in the testing and all that, he's been like the quickest in most of the sessions. When you look at a driver like that, um, being a driver yourself who, you know, who's kind of worked through all the ranks of racing, had tons of success, and also, um, you know, race at the top level of your sport, what, what would be your biggest advice to someone like that? I mean, I think it, it, it's the reality of the grind and how how much you have to dedicate and push and, and, and it's sort of a level of determination, especially like, again, it depends on the situation if you have funding behind you or whatever, but like ultimately you just have to be so utterly dedicated and, and ruthless and, you know, really just do everything in your power to, to achieve what you want to achieve. I think it's, it's so difficult to get there and um you know you you're faced with sort of a lot of adversity on the way along the way so it just requires like you just have to have that love for it and that desire and that determination i think if you have that you can then achieve anything like if you've got the skill set and you have that burning desire to just like that is where i'm going to get um i think that's that's sort of the number one thing it's it's a you know because what you don't want to do is is have those you know we talked about what ifs earlier today but like you don't want to have those what ifs after your career of what if i did that what did i did i give it everything i had like was there another level that i could have gone to could i have you know done and not just in the car but like outside because we all know that like how you are outside the car and, and working to find sponsors and building connections and like that's as big a part of it um and, and you just don't want to be left with any sort of regrets as is there more i could have done um, so I think just, you know, that absolute dedication, even when things are going well, of just putting in everything that you have is the most crucial thing. Um, you know, and I, and I, I do think just from a, you know, sort of a, a standing, you know, now being sort of further on is that, you know, I think for me, I, like, I don't have any regrets. Like, I, I feel like I, I did do everything I could do. So I think that was good. Um, 
but I think also not letting, you know, not, not letting yourself get a, like get ahead of yourself in that it is a tough sport. There is a lot of ups and downs and be prepared for those mentally for those ups and downs um, because it isn't just going to be all, you know, all rosy and this big contract comes along. I mean, maybe it is, but in, you know, if you're lucky, but you've just got to be prepared for that grind and know that it, it's not going to be easy. There's going to be a lot of ups and downs and it, it comes down to how badly do you want it? Um, and I think you see those guys that are successful or the guys that, you know, they, they want it more than anybody else and they put everything into it. And yeah, sometimes the cards will fall on your lap. Sometimes they'll, they'll go the other way. But um, the biggest thing that you can control is, is that level of determination and desire. So yeah, I think, I think that's, that's, I mean, I think that's pretty much the same thing with any sport or anything in life. It's like just putting everything into it. But um, yeah, with, with this, I think, I think that is the case. That's how you separate yourself is, you know, you, you, you're willing to go that extra mile to put that extra bit of time in to work that little bit harder. Um, and it, and it pays off. Yeah. I equate it to um, for 99% of the people trying to become a professional racer. I equate it to trying to fly a jet fighter through the eye of a needle. I mean, you have such a small room, small margin of error in terms of, you know, the right decisions, um, the relationships you build. And I, and I'm a big person on relationships. I think you should always try to cultivate any relationship you, you have and, you know, not just maybe somebody can, you think can take you somewhere, but, with the people around you. Um, I'm a big relationship guy, but I, I just think for the average person, uh, it, it's so hard to do that. It just, there's so little margin of room for error that you just, like you said, you just have to exploit everything that you have at your benefit. Yeah. And minimize the things that, that may be your detriment. And then you just, yeah. At the end of the day, you're you're kind of if if you've done all that, and if maybe if the gods are smiling on you, it works out. Yeah, I, no, I I totally agree. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think from from my side too. Like, I, I had thoughts as well, sort of afterwards, as like you know, was again like as you always do. Like, was there more? Was there a relationship that I could have you know done more? Like, could I have been you know more? You know, I, I sort of always had the and it, it's sort of more of my personality of like the the sort of nice guy laid back approach. You know, like, what if I wasn't? What if I was a little bit more, you know, a little bit, you know, a, a little bit, you know, push a little bit more here or there or be a little bit edgier there or like, you know, maybe more on the ruthless level or whatever. Like, is there something I could have done there? Um, I, I think ultimately, you know, like to me, I, I came back to no, I think, but the related you know, building those relationships, whether it's, you know, like you said, relationships that can take you, take you somewhere, building those relationships with engineers, with mechanics, just relationship fostering what sponsors all of it in general i just think is so 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 important and i think all you can do is just be like who you are and just put like in my case you know like again you can do all the what ifs of you know um you know i mean i've had like various team owners for instance where it's like yeah you just I, like i felt like my personality didn't gel as well with them as you know, they're, they're looking for the playboy, the, the, you know, the crazy person, like there's, I don't want to name names, but there's a few people out there that they are a little harder to get on with. And you think, oh, what if I'd have, you know, changed my approach a little bit? Could I have, you know, kind of snuggled up closer to them? And I think ultimately you just have to be sort of who you are, put your best That's foot right. forward, put everything forward, 
do your, you know, absolutely everything at your disposal. And ultimately, like that's going to give you the best chance of, of winning out. And like I said, I don't, I, I don't look at it uh, like for myself personally as, as a failure, you know, like I got to a good level and, and had a good career. I just you know, naturally, like you always want a little bit more. Um, so I look at that and say, okay, it worked, you know, like putting in that dedication of, you know, in, in my case, like not having funding and just not giving up and keep knocking on doors and, and, you know, trying to be a decent person and build relationships and be genuine. Like it works, it, it gets you there. And like I said, then at some point you just have to see if the, the gods are shining on you or not. Um, but you know, you come away with, with no regrets. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think again, same with same with any sport, same with anything in life. It's, it, I think, it, it's that same mentality. I think a good example uh, that Aaron and I can speak to, as far as we we talked to Tice Carlson, I don't know, a few weeks ago, we released the thing. I and I've known Tice since the night, like since basically 1990. As far as a driver, now I knew his, him and his family a little bit before that because his family sponsored my little league baseball team with their bail bond company. But uh, he and his family took in a gentleman, uh, a kid. He was like 18 at the time. Uh, and this kid wanted to go racing. And a teacher, you know, he was a few years younger than Tice. And, but a teacher said, hey, if you like racing, you ought to talk to Tice. And they got together. And, and um, basically, he became like a little brother to Tice. Well, that guy today is Jeff Dickerson from Spire Motorsports. And, um, so my point being is you should always treat everybody nicely, yeah. not because you can necessarily maybe get something out of them later on, but you just never know who's going to be who. I mean, you, you know, just because of what you are today, that doesn't mean what you're going to be tomorrow. And if you treat everybody with kindness and respect, you know, who knows how life works yeah. out. You know? And I think to your point, not, you know, not doing it because you're trying to get something out of somebody. I think that's, you know, it instantly that comes across, even if deep down you, you know, you're, you, you are fostering relationships because obviously you're hoping an opportunity comes about. Yeah. I think if you go into it with that mentality of getting something out of somebody, like the genuine side of it is lost and it's probably not going to work. I, I think you, you, you be, you be yourself and you be a good person and you treat people well and, and hopefully good things happen. Um, and yeah, yeah, maybe, you, you know, maybe you get lucky and one of those people turns into something, has an opportunity, you know, like, again, I can think of many, many, many people along the way that that, that happened happened with me too. Like Gary Peterson is a, is a great example of that. And in, in my early Indie Lights years, you just, you know, you find the right people, you get on well with them and, you know, that takes you one, one step and you just keep going until, you know, and, until as far as you can. Yeah, I, I agree. I think. I think if you put enough positive energy in the world, you're going to get positive energy back. And I'm not necessarily saying in the form of, you know, some great riches or anything like that, but just, just, you just never know how relationships are going to work out and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Alex, this for me has been an absolute pleasure. Um, I, I knew very little about you before we started talking um and it has really been um I, I mean i've really enjoyed it and and i hope you have enjoyed talking to us and uh in my book you're a winner i mean to do the things you've done so few of people who ever dare to dream get as far as you did so um thank yeah, you so no, much yeah i i appreciate yeah. yeah 
appreciate coming on. I, yeah, it's been fun. And like I said, nowadays I can just talk about it in a, you know, in a very candid, open way of like, you know, here's the deal. Here's how you feel. Here's, here's the situation, which, you know, at the, at the time in the moment and even shortly after, yeah, you don't tend to do that. So, um, yeah, now it's just fun to to reminisce on on those times and look back at it and say, yeah, that was a that was a a, a really fun period, um, and I'm you know I'm glad that it it all happened the way it did, and you know, um, do I miss winning races? Hell yeah, but um, but it's nice to it's nice to look back and know that you know that had a, had a good old run of it, run of it. Absolutely appreciate you. Um, I appreciate you responding to my email. I mean, there's a lot of guys who don't respond, so I really appreciate. Um, appreciate you responding and willing to do it yeah no it's it's yeah it's, it's fun to talk to to race fans and just you know talk about the the great sport that we all love so yeah happy to well we appreciate that and maybe in the future maybe you know we do like an indy 500 preview or something like that if you're free we would love yeah. to have you on and uh you know again it's just absolute pleasure yeah anytime yeah thanks everybody yeah it's been, been great Thank you Right, thanks, Alex.